The Centre Steer podcast is sponsored by Commonwealth Classics and Knightsbridge Overland. This month's Center Steer podcast is sponsored by Commonwealth Classics. Commonwealth Classics is a direct importer of classic vehicles from Europe and South America and has a rotating collection of rare and unique vehicles in their showroom located in Virginia, just 45 minutes from Washington, D.C. Visit www.cwclassics.com to view their current inventory of classic vehicles. Thanks, Commonwealth Classics, for your continued support of the podcast. The Center Steer Podcast, a podcast by, for, and about Land Rover owners. Welcome to the Center Steer Podcast, podcast number 116 for November 2022. Center Steer is a podcast by, for, and about Land Rover owners. I'm your host, John Costage. Joining me via Zoom, we have the full team, Harold, Morgan, and Dixon. Good evening, gentlemen. Hey, good evening. How's it going? Very, very well. We are coming off of Thanksgiving here in uh, the United States. Dixon, I ho- how was your your metric Thanksgiving going? Hope that went well. Oh, the metric one went just fine. <laughs> <laughs> that's what that's what I'm calling Canadian things now. They're they're the metric aversion. Uh, this country really hasn't metricated as much as you think it has. I know, I know. That's true. That is true. <laughs> only officially, like in the signage and the rest of the, the the rank and file, I think still prefer the imperial system. And especially when it comes to shopping, if it's cheaper to show prices per pound rather than kilogram, they will. Well, Gasoline. By the liter, because the price is lower than by the gallon. At that rate, they ought to they ought to show the gasoline prices in U.S. dollars per liter. So that'd be lower mm. yet. Well, at least they're not Whitworth. <laughs> Canada never was really Whitworth. We were always tied to the United States more than with uh, Britain and a lot of industry. This month is the first of a two-parter. George Bull. Off-roader, overlander, and former Land Rover certified instructor joins us this month to share his adventures in Africa. And George will return in January to share his adventures in North America. We talked to George a couple weeks ago and conversation was so great and interesting that we extended it and uh, we decided to to do a two-parter. Yeah, we just finished talking to him. In December, we'll make his uh, triumphant return as he does on an annual basis now, Jeff Aronson, and he will talk to us about the year in Land Rover. And He'll even come down the chimney to talk to us. Thanks for listening and a big thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. We appreciate your support. Visit our website to see how you can support the podcast as a Patreon supporter. You can also buy a shirt or sticker or buy us a tee. It's very much like Patreon, but you get to choose the amount as Thanks to Bob, who buys us brown water. Thank you, Bob. The Baron of Brown Water. Oh, I like that. The Baron of Brown Water. Yeah, he's, he's earned that title. He's earned that title. He definitely has. Bob, you've earned the title. Baron, the Baron of Brown Water. Uh, can we have that? Uh, we should have a, like a st- stencil or maybe some sort of uh, plate and put that on his uh, defender. The Baron of Brown Water. And as a bonus for Patreon supporters, uh, most guests answer our 10 questions, which is a quick fire lightning round Q&A. And we place that on our Patreon stream exclusive for our Patreon supporters. And this is your monthly reminder that 2023 is Land Rover's 75th anniversary. I'm sure you've been hearing about it and it's coming up very fast than you might imagine. We're inviting all Land Rover owners to the Pittsburgh Vintage Grand Prix in July of 2023, especially series and defender owners. You have seven months to get your Rover ready. 
and you have six months to get your rover ready for Anarch's Diamond Jubilee, which will take place June 15th through the 18th, 2023, at the Greek Peak Mountain Resort in Cortland, New York. Registration has opened. Registration is now open, and we have over 300 people already registered for the event. Now, is that going to be capped at some level? Yes, there's a cap. Uh, there's a cap on the number of people, but it's like over a thousand. So if we start okay. to get over a thousand people, then we have you know some further conversations with uh, Greek Peak uh, to make sure we can handle all that. There is a goal of number of trucks we have in mind. Uh, there is a cap for the number of people that can join us for the celebration dinner that's on Friday. So if you're going to register, you'll notice that uh, the Friday dinner is not included in your normal registration. That's an extra amount for that. I believe it's uh, twenty, no, forty dollars for adults and uh, twenty dollars for kids. So, so, so even though the the event may not sell out, the dinner might. And then the, yeah, the dinner has a cap of 600 people on that because it takes place on an outdoor deck and that is the occupancy limit for that space. And speaking of news and an area where there's no limit, I saw that, John, you're, you're passing up on the opportunity to buy what <laughs> might actually be a running Freelander. It is the you one. Might, it is the one. Well, you know, as as I told you, uh, we had this exchange on Facebook. If you're uh, following any of that, listeners, as I told said to Dixon, I have to put a new frame on the 109, and that's where that money is going. And money is a finite resource. Uh, unlike your unrequited love for freelanders. <laughs> oh, it's it's quite requited. <laughs> See, I'm all I'm all fresh out of falling chimneys, or else I might might be tempted. But <laughs> may I suggest? A uh, hybrid conversion, a Freelander with the 109 body bolted onto it. Okay, okay. Let's not, let's, let's slow your roll. <laughs> slow your roll. No, let's not go there. No, no, thank you. I'm, I'm, I don't think you'd find anybody to, to make that for you. I, I, so, yeah, I don't, uh, that doesn't, no. I, I would go the other way. I, I could drop a Freelander body on a Defender chassis. That'd be yeah, okay. That's, that, that, that would be fun. That could be yes. interesting, but yeah, that'd be the way to go on that. But uh, other than that, no, let's not. Uh, Even have the paint code picked out for it. I do have. We got to figure out a way to do this, Dixon, and I'll, I'll put this into your hands as our Freelander aficionado. <laughs> I have, I have Freelander IPO mats front and rear that have never been used. I never placed them in my Freelander and I, I found them in a closet. So they are Freelander branded Land Rover Freelander branded IPO. This was like IPOs were all the rage when the Freelander came out. So before you, if you ordered one of the first Freelanders, you got free IPO mats. And so I still have those. Oh, nice. You got to put them in your bathroom as bath mats. Maybe you uh, give it to a Freelander running Freelander owner who shows up at the event. Maybe I'll just. Uh, oh, here we go. Here we go. Anybody out there has a functional Freelander that can actually make it to New York will be treated to a set of mats courtesy of John Costage. Yes, absolutely. And also, if the Freelander is your second vehicle that you are registering for the Diamond Jubilee, it receives free entry. But only if it I, comes in under its own power, right? It has to be 
uh, undertone power, roadworthy, registered, titled. The same with a series one. Series ones and Freelanders, uh, as in, who are being who are being registered and coming to the Diamond Jubilee as a as a additional vehicle, not your primary driver to the event. That doesn't seem fair. It seems to me somebody that actually has the the guts to to attempt to drive a Freelander all the way to the event as their only vehicle deserves a prize, not 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 a not a bill. That would be a discussion with the esteemed leaders of the event committee, Mr. Bruce Fowler and Mr. Mike McQuaig. And, and also the Baron of Brown Water. That whole idea, by the way, was courtesy of Dixon. Well, that was my challenge to you, John. Are there more running 80 inches or Freelanders in this hemisphere? The free Series 1, does that have to be an 80 inch or can it be any Series 1? I mean, it's any Series 1. It's any, it's any Series 1 now. Any Series 1, any Freelander as an additional vehicle, free entry. Sure, any Freelander, because that's really not going to cost the club much, because how many of those are actually going to show up? Well, I'm still kind of shocked that on the the floor mats that you're willing to give up the opportunity to to increase, you know, at least fivefold the value of those those floor mats and just give them away. Well, you know, I had a thought that you need a rover to come to these events next year. If this uh, Freelander's, you know, rolling and assuming it's rolling and under its own power, it could be a good vehicle for you. And I'll give you some free mats. Nice. And, and you know, the question there, you know, rolling and running under its own power, Vermont is an inspection state. So is Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if I could actually get it registered and inspect it. Morgan, you do need a functioning rover. I do. That is true. And it's actually a nice price. It was actually a reasonable, reasonable amount. And uh, David Short, also friend of the podcast, was, I think, in the city in Virginia that where it was. He was willing to go check it out for anybody that was interested. And I do have a parts truck for you. So, you know. Ooh. Well, we've been delaying the news yes. a bit longer than we want to. This uh, <laughs> forestalling the inevitable. Uh, yeah, it's uh, this is not a good month in in Land Rover news. I'm going to give a fair warning to our our podcast listeners. The majority of the news is going to be like business type stuff because so much has happened and affects the business. There is very little in, when it comes to talking about the new vehicles or forthcoming vehicles this month. So let's get into it. Improved financial performance in the second quarter, despite continued semiconductor supply con uh, constraints. Revenues in quarter two of physical year 23 was 5.3 billion pounds, which was up 36% compared to the last, uh, the quarter two of the last physical year. And it was up 20% uh, compared to the uh, first quarter of fiscal year 23. Production ramp up of the new Range Rover and the new Range Rover Sport improved with 13,537 units wholesaled in the quarter which was up from 5,700 units in the previous quarter. Strong demand continued with client order uh, book now at 205,000 units. Three most popular models, uh, the new Range Rover, the new Range Rover Sport, and the new Defender account for over 70% of the order book. And increasing partnership agreements with semiconductor suppliers uh, expected to enable improving volumes in the second half of financial year ending March 2023 and beyond. And we'll get into some of those details in a moment. This was in the uh, JLR 
PR, and this is also worth mentioning, the final F-Type is set to launch in March of 2023, marking 75 years of iconic Jaguar V8 sports cars before Jaguar becomes a pure electric modern luxury brand from 2025. Yeah, of course, their their tenure as a V8 sports car is only about 30 years old, but okay. Looks like that's going to be the final uh, internal combustion engine Jaguar uh, will launch in March of 2023. Well, the big news, and I said there's a lot of news this month, probably the biggest one is the JLR CEO Bellare to leave after losses supply uh, woes. Bellare's exit comes as JLR struggles to ramp up production amid industry-wide supply chain issues. The company also has been uh, unable to make significant headway on electrification. Semiconductor shortages have left customers of $100,000 Range Rovers waiting more than a year for their vehicles, with sales suspended for some variants. In the quarter ended September, the automaker reported deliveries to dealerships that trailed guidance by 17%. JLR has reported losses for seven consecutive quarters, according to Bloomberg data, most recently reporting a loss before tax of 173 million pounds, that's $206 million, in the three months ended September. The company said that it forecasts an improvement in production and sales volumes in the six months to March of 2023 and said free cash flow may approach breakeven uh, for the full financial year. Bellari has been revamping JLR's business model in an electric-focused strategy called Reimagine with a plan to make all Jaguar cars fully electric by 2025 and offer battery variants of its Land Rover vehicles. The automaker has not given much detail on its plans, such as where it will build electric models or where it will source batteries from. In May, Bloomberg News reported that JLR was in talks with Northvolt and S-Volt Energy Technology about supplying batteries for a range of EVs. Uh, it may produce in Slovakia. It's nice to see that they have so many orders on the books, but it's concerning when you see the that number growing and growing and growing every month <laughs> and, you know, more vehicles not making it out of the factory. You're right. In fact, the demand is staying strong. They are extremely lucky. Extremely lucky. Yes. So this is a, a long one, but I think it's... Uh, important to read. And this is from Dr. Charles Tennant, who's an automotive expert. Coventry Telegraph has them in their paper often. And he has explained the resignation and the problems JLR is facing. And this is an opinion piece they had. I'm going to read a good bit of this. JLR CEO Thierry Bellari is resigning due to personal reasons announced by Tata. Bellari has only been in the post for two years and was in the process of transforming the company to an electrified future, which he turned to reimagine. As a at a strategic level, reimagine was aiming to create a future of modern luxury by design, but at an operational level, difficult decisions were taken and supply chain problems were creating chaos in production. JLR has not turned to profit since 2018, following the failed dash for growth attempt of Ralph Spath. In that drive, bold plans were in place for JLR to make more than 1 million cars per year in a quest to take on the German brands. This was fueled by a 25 billion pound product plan to take the vehicle lines from 7 to 14 and the workforce to over 40,000 people. Production was expanded in the UK, Brazil, India, and Slovakia, but the anticipated sales growth never came and plateaued at 614,000 units. 
in 2018, delivering a 25 billion pound turnover and profit of 1.5 billion pounds. From then on, it has been a sorry tale of falling sales, financial losses, investment write-offs, and a painful downsizing through thousands of job losses. Something had to change and Bellari was hired by Tata to replace Spaeth in September 2020. At the time, Bellari was seen as a surprise appointment. Having been ousted as Renault's CEO after just nine months in the job, I had said at the time that he uh, could have been an experienced executive who could bring much-needed operational efficiency and quality leadership to the beleaguered company. And that's uh, Charles Tennant speaking. And his entry would be bulging for attention from a sales jump, huge losses, high debt, overcapacity in manufacturing, bloated cost base, poor quality and reliability, low productivity, and expensive transition to electric vehicles, since then, multiple headwinds have hit the company from Dieselgate, COVID, supply chain shortages, and particularly the semiconductor chips. After six months in the post, Bellari finally stamped his authority on the company with his reimagined strategy, but to everybody's amazement, he then canceled two Jaguar vehicle programs, which were near start of production. These were not just any vehicles, being the all-new electric and much-needed Jaguar XJ Large Saloon and J-Pace SUV to be produced at the Castle Bromwich Jaguar factory. We never really heard the full reasons, but many of us believed that the newly appointed chief creative officer, Jerry McGovern, was behind it as he was taking over from Jaguar design director Ian Cullum and wanted to stamp his own authority on Jaguar. Canceling programs this late in the stage cost big money and meant that the Castle Bromwich factory could close for future car production after the current models have run out. Jaguar was to be repurposed as a high-end, low-volume producer of all-electric luxury vehicles to take on Bentley, Porsche, Aston Martin. This meant all current Jaguar cars would now run out, uh, out in a death spiral. Meanwhile, Land Rover had successfully delivered the new Defender, Range Rover, and Sport to critical acclaim and was on a path to its own electrification. It is worth pointing out that the new product plan effectively separated the Jaguar and Land Rover vehicle platforms and engineering with Land Rover using the modular longitudinal architecture platform, Jaguar was going to design an in-house platform called Panthera. This surprised many of us as surely a bought-in platform or collaboration would have made more sense. So, with all going well for Bellare, or was it? I think that Tata may, Motors may have run out of patience, and it was easy to see why this could be the case. Still got more to go. Here we go. A JLR are still losing money hand over fist with its pre-tax losses for the first cons six consecutive quarters, whereas competitors were posting record profits. The latest results uh, for the July to September showing 178 million pound loss, which brings the total for the year to an eye-watering 697 million pounds. JLR boasts that they have an order backlog of over 200,000 cars, but that does not pay the bills until they are customer in customers' hands. Other car makers have handled the semiconductor chip shortage much better by ably prioritizing production on higher profitable cars and have actually made more money on lower volumes as a result. But JLR may not have been able to leverage chip production to their advantage and the results have been catastrophic. In the first six months of the fiscal year, sales were down 23.2%. Jaguar only managed 32,547 units, which is down almost 33%. And all key markets were down with the important North American arm only managing 31,000 units uh, down 40%. Their only pure electric car, the I-PACE, only managed to chalk up 4,000 unit sales, which is down 20%. Wrapping this up. Other manufacturers are growing their sales volume as electric cars enter the mainstream. So while Tata Motors look for a new JLR CEO, their chief financial officer, Adrian Mardell, will act as caretaker in what is clearly a very turbulent time. 
for the company. That's a lot of interesting stuff in there. At the very end, I'm very still, end, you're I'm still about... digesting it being Jerry's fault for mucking around in Jaguar. <laughs> well, I, knew that was, I knew you'd like that. That was very interesting. Now you wonder how much of that smoke is, is actually fire. Well, we, we've saw those things over time. And we've, we, I remember hearing all about these over the years as we've talked about them. Yeah, I mean, and it is just an opinion piece, mind you. It's, it, but still, it, it makes a lot of good but points. The, the yeah. sales drops, how much of that is chips and how much is, is not selling the vehicles? If the fact that they got 200 in backlog says that uh, it's production problems that are causing the, the drop sales. If you don't have the chips, you can't. You yeah. can build the cars, and and also you're not prioritizing the right vehicles to build. Right, and it's tough to sell something that you know you can't build. I mean, you try, but not everybody's willing to sit and wait, knowing full well you can't build it. I think one of the stories we have downstream is talking about a new Defender not having adaptive cruise control, while a Toyota Corollas have it as standard. And I'm thinking they probably wanted to put it in, but if they were prioritizing where to put their chips, maybe that was something where, you know, let's not yeah. put it in the chips into the sensors for that and to operate that. So therefore it's not part of that. They would have liked to have done it, but they, right. they couldn't. Toyota gets, you know, they get high tit on all those, that, those parts. So. Yeah. That's, that's the really hard part for Land Rover. I think is, you know, how low they are in the pecking order four parts well specifically for electronics because yeah like toyota they they pretty much get first pick after apple which seems weird but you know <laughs> you know yeah well, well we'll see that coming up another article about that uh around them looking for a, a new semiconductor supplier there's some another story on that but i think that's what tenant here is showing is that there's been a bunch of things that have happened and they haven't probably executed correctly on maybe half of them and it's just kind of all added up to problems I had to chuckle to myself what the mention of of trying to expand the product lines from seven to fourteen, which seems like almost all of that was in the Range Rover yeah. <laughs> name. Yeah. And and it goes and, back to my prediction that eventually the two companies are going to split. You'll have the Range Rover company and then you'll have the Land Rover company. Yeah, and it and seems the Range very, Rover's very Range Rover heavy at the moment. Oh, extremely. And, and of course, the Range Rovers, aside from the new Defender, are the models that sell the best, which means you're trying to split all of your highest sales, you know, in terms of chips and parts right. amongst very similar vehicles, but they're not the same vehicles. That's Bellari. There's there's more more news to cover, and it, uh, it's uh, there's some other... Un unpleasant things too. Bellari made his announcement. He's not gone officially until the end of the year, December 31st, 2022. I mean, he talked before that announcement, he was talking about the uh, chip issue and he said uh, that it's going to take years to solve. And in fact, he's quoted here saying, we should not forget that the supply of chips is really a crisis in our sector. Bellari told investors an analysis on the third quarter earnings call, adding that he had discussed the issue with other industry CEOs, quote, we can see improvements, but it's going to be not months, but years before we come back to the situation that is much more normal, unquote. JLR's problem is more acute in that it's a smaller customer for chip suppliers compared to the biggest automotive groups, giving it less leverage. In September, one supplier even broke their agreement with a company, leaving it short. That did dramatically impact September production, the chief financial officer Adrian Mardell said on the call, cutting the company's sales predictions. 
JLR has since re-signed a supplier, but it in a pie chart showing the sources of the 430 million pound inflationary increases in the six months to the September, around a third were attributed to the rising cost of semiconductors just below the that of soaring commodity prices and above the increasing energy bills. You talk about the soaring commodity prices, the semiconductors are a commodity too. So since the supply is so short, everybody is like bidding more money to get them. So it, it costs more to, to get your foot in the door. And I think since it's such a large part of the manufacturing process, you kind of have to call it out on its own. Yeah. And it's it's one of those situations where, you know, the auto industry has actually done a very good job over the last number of decades moving to a just-in-time you know, manufacturing process, really nobody foresaw that chip manufacturing itself would like grind to a halt for months. Yeah. <laughs> right when chip demand was increasing immensely. Um, and that's just really hard to yeah. catch up from. That all had to do with COVID though. I mean, COVID shut those, shut the plants down and the right. workers couldn't, and you know, China had it with a zero, uh, zero tolerance policy for COVID. They were shutting whole cities down and people couldn't get to the, to, to work. So therefore that put a, a, a big constraint not just on chips, but you know, other, other items. Yeah. And that's, you know, and they're still doing that, right. You know, then, that's, yes. that's still the headlines <laughs> right now is that. Right. It's, Meanwhile, it's, demand is, still gone up and up and up so it's 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 aggravated the problem and jit only works when you have a reliable supply chain that's that's rock solid and steady exactly i mean it's very efficient it's a very lean process but one little disruption and you're screwed and to address that jlr has chosen wolf speed for semiconductor supply, electronics subcomponents supplier Wolfspeed will supply semiconductors to JLR's forthcoming electric vehicle range, beginning with a Range Rover model in 2024. Wolfspeed will supply semiconductors for the inverters used in JLR's forthcoming EVs. The first Range Rover vehicles using the technology will be available in 2024, the all-new electric Jaguar brand the following year. The silicon carbide microchips will also be used in the Defender and Discovery models. And this other article here has much more detail, which I thought we'll check a look at that. The partnership builds on Wolf Speed's existing relationship with Jaguar TCS Racing Team. Quote, who are we quoting here? We're quoting Terry Bellari. Uh, we are not strangers having collaborated together with Jaguar TSE Racing Team for the last five seasons. By developing that into strategic partnership as part of our reimagined strategy, we can integrate Wolf Speed's advanced silicon carbide technology into our next generation electric vehicles, delivering extended range and performance capabilities for our clients, Bellari said. The partnership agreement sees JLR participate in the Wolfspeed Assurance of Supply program to secure the supply of this technology for future electric vehicle production needs. There you go to your point, Harold. This will enable greater visibility and control over JLR's future supply chain. Wolfspeed's advanced silicon carbide technology will be used specifically in the vehicle uh, vehicle's inverters, managing the transfer of power from the battery to the electric motors, with a focus on increased powertrain efficiency and extended driving range. Wolfspeed silicon carbide power device solutions will be produced at Wolfspeed's Mohawk Valley Fab in Marcy, New York, which opened in April 2022 as the world's largest 200-millimeter silicon carbide fabrication facility. The fully automated facility dramatically expands capacity for Wolfspeed's silicon carbide technologies, which will supply electric propulsion systems ranging from 400 volts to 800 volts. I had to quickly check at 
because I was like, oh, they're doing it in New York. Maybe it's somewhere nearby Fishkill, which used to be like the big IBM chip plant a little further northwest or a lot further. You know, it's interesting to us because, you know, New York is our neighbor between, you know, Pennsylvania and Vermont and Ontario. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's the big no man's land between all of us. Yes. Yes. It's interesting for Land Rover that yet again, they're picking a supplier that is not in the UK. Uh, Yes, that is true. And actually, uh, just looking at the map, it's not terribly far from Greek Peak. (laughs) Nice. Maybe we can get a tour. It's well, it's probably about an hour away, maybe a little more because I see it's uh, it's near Utica, which is east of Syracuse and Cortland is north of Syracuse, excuse me, south of Syracuse. So there's like a little triangle there. And the connection between Cortland and Utica is the hypotenuse of the triangle. And it's, yeah, a, wet, yeah, and it's a wet hypotenuse too, isn't it? Isn't it a lake? <laughs> uh, no, 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 sir. It is in fact a dry hypotenuse. Okay. All right. <laughs> At least they're doing something. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's very important that they have access and, you know, they're getting, you know, guaranteed placement in order for the chips. Uh, it's just, too bad that there's nothing closer to home for them in that market because sure certainly the u.s gets some land rovers but not as many as the rest of the world and it's it's not like you can insert the chips once the trucks get here either so you got you're still shipping them but there's some things at play here that i think is one of the reasons why that plant is in new york there's the um, you know the u.s passed that uh, chip manufacturing bill. So that's probably one of the reasons why they're building here in America. Another part of the Inflation Reduction Act was, is about having vehicles to get, I think EVs to get uh, federal tax rebates. They have to be produced in the U.S. And that's in quotes. I don't know what the definition is there, in there. So, so, I think it's probably some some threshold level of, of American content. So maybe having right. these, then maybe having chips here is, a, is a, at least maybe an effort to say, hey, we're using American-made chips. You know, don't tax us too much on our vehicles coming in that we're going to, especially Jags are going to be all electric. Certainly counts. Yeah. And uh, TSMC, which is sort of the biggest manufacturer of the, you know, smallest microprocessor units i think they're down to like five nanometer or four nanometer at this point uh they're expanding to india and arizona in the u.s even the the big companies are are going to be opening up here arizona is a very corporate friendly state so that one makes sense yes a lot of people have been questioning because it actually takes a huge amount of water to produce semiconductors or to you know process them so let's go to a desert um, so yeah well there yeah. will be that <laughs> However, they're actually at about 98% recycling rate for their water at this point. So not, not really a big deal. Let's move on in the news to more Land Rover news, which is not necessarily all positive. The JLR Special Vehicles boss leaves the company. Michael Vanderseid, Managing Director of JLR Special Vehicle Operations Division, has announced his departure from the firm. In a statement, he said, quote, after four and a half fantastic years at JLR Special Vehicle Ops, I'm leaving JLR to pursue some new opportunities in my work and personal life, unquote. That's all I got on that one. He's leaving. Yeah, I wonder where he's going. It's interesting that it doesn't say where he's going. It's for opportunities and work and personal life. And he's a youngish looking chap, so it's not retirement. Yeah, I just wonder if he's going to be building special vehicles for someone else. That's possible. That said, the SVO department is 
worked pretty heavily. So, you know, even though four years doesn't seem that long, it probably yep. was a very busy but profitable four years for him. So, Or he was not meeting expectations and he saw the writing on the wall. There's that too. This announcement was made at the end a month ago at the end of October. So this was prior to Bolare's announcement. JLR cuts UK production on chip shortages. So JLR is reducing vehicle output in the UK through March as the automaker prioritizes making higher margin models because of the semiconductor shortages, a person, according to a person familiar with the, with the matter, and this was dated November 25th. I now have to announce the dates on these articles as uh, all the news coming at us. The money-losing automaker, <laughs> thanks Automotive News York, owned by Tata, will cut production of the Range Rover Velar and the Jag F-Pace models that are made in Solihull, while ramping up output of its most lucrative models, the full-size Range Rover and the Sport. The person said, asking not to be identified, discussing operational issues. JLR may also reduce production at its Hellwell plant, where it makes the more affordable Evoke and Discovery Sport models, though a final decision has not been made. Production at JLR's Nitra plant in Slovakia, where the automaker makes the best-selling Defender SUV, is unaffected. JLR does not plan to cut any jobs at its UK plants as a result of the reduced production, as it plans to ramp back up when cheap chip supplies normalize. So there's that. Add that, add that to the mix. And then this uh, article, dated November 11th, JLR to resume marketing after supply shortages ease. <laughs> so just two months before or two weeks before JLR will resume marketing spending after production levels for key models started to return to normal. So what happened in those two weeks? I guess, uh, I guess a lot happened in those two weeks. The automaker has reduced its marketing spending in recent months as it struggled to fulfill orders for in-demand models such as the new Range Rover, Range Rover Sport, Land Rover Defender due to chip shortages and a slow ramp up production of the new of the new Range Rover models. Chief Financial Officer Adrian Mardell, who will become the new C temporary CEO, uh, we really have not marketed these cars or, or any of our vehicles over the last 12 months because of the supply. And JLR's variable marketing expenses, which include discounts, hit a record low in the last quarter at 1.1% of revenue, down from 1.7% of the previous quarter. The drop saved the company 29 million pounds, $34 million, according to this figure. Things are up, things are down, things are going around. They're cutting production, yet they they said supplies were getting better, but then I guess supply chips aren't, or maybe they're pivoting. It would appear that JLR is now in the roller coaster business. <laughs> well played, sir. Well played. Well played. So that's like main business related news. We'll probably, we'll talk about chips again, but. How could we not? Less so, less so the rest of the episode. It will, it will happen, but uh, less so. Let's, let's have some fish with those chips. <laughs> this is why JLR has swapped reach for the right audience. And this is from PR Week. Most brands have evolved over the past two decades, but few have evolved as much as those in the modern luxury space, having spent many years focusing on an older customer via traditional media. Today's luxury brands are often targeting a different customer using a dramatically different media strategy. This has required a mindset shift as... Ken McConomy, head of global PR at JLR, explained at PR World's recent measurement conference. And he's quoted as saying, we're transforming PR and the way we measure it. In the old days, the car was the star. We would target anybody about writing cars. 
For our global launch, we took 1,500 car journalists to the south of France. I chartered seven flights. 80% of the media where we were looking after back then were giving us 20% of what we wanted. Our KPIs included the number of front covers we got. Today, by comparison, the brand is far more targeted in the publications and journalists it works with. This is a direct result of the partnership with the... Sizen, I guess it's some sort of PR company. And there's a quote here. We're working closely with JLR and PR leaders in 20 markets to collate a modern luxury reading list that covers all of the target markets. Unquote. The streamlined approach is being put into action. One recent launch in Napa, California involved about 260 journalists. While a planned event in March 2023, we'll see 100 writers and influencers involved. The brand worked with this PR company to identify 600 key titles across 25 countries within four key categories, with the biggest change being a shift away from only targeting automotive media. While these journalists are still crucial to the brand, Sisson's insights led to JLR targeting three other key areas. Sisson's this uh, PR company. First up, business media is important. With many customers reading the Financial Times or Wall Street Journal and reputation management being a key part of the PR team's work. Technology titles have also become much more important to the brand, while perhaps most surprisingly, non-automotive lifestyle journalists and influencers make up 40% of those invited to launches. Additionally, the KPIs used by the brand have changed. And that's uh, for those maybe not in the fields or haven't been in business in a while. Keep KPIs as key performance indicators. There's a quote here. We've put the sledgehammer of scale back into the toolbox and the scalpel has come out. McConomy said, we've signed up to getting less media. Our reach will go down, but it will be with the right audience, unquote. The PR and marketing teams are now more closely aligned. There's a big focus on sentiment, message delivery, onward activity, and website traffic. There's a measurement approach in response to changing communications. The cultural transformation change is driven by this data. We pour over customer reach, our clients' passions, their pastimes, what other luxury items they're consuming, whether they're reading, and how. We're tracking when, where, and who we're advertising to and how effective it is. So there's some of your... uh, your third-party cookie tracking is part of that. Sisson's monitoring analytics platform informs us. Uh, it helps us create better ideas and build more effective campaigns. The modern luxury mindset that JLR is evolving into means reimagining the brand. This includes embracing more bespoke storytelling, such as imaginative events that don't necessarily focus only on the cars. So I thought that was interesting to read some insight into their marketing strategy. Yeah, my takeaway is they're going to be cutting back on the swag they give to Jeff. Well, Jeff was one of the 260 that were sent to uh, California. So he's yep. he's made the cut. Well, he made that cut, but we'll see. No, well, he got to go to the Destination Defender event. Well, well, let's, uh, let's hope they keep using him. But it yeah. is, he's a small he's publication, a- and they're talking about cutting those sorts of things out. So. Well, though they're also looking at influencers, and there's a few of them around. That's true, and, and Jeff does have influence. Certainly does. That's not what they mean by influence. <laughs> <laughs> he may be an influencer, certainly, but you need to have 100,000 Instagram followers or TikTok followers or YouTube before the weaving. That's when you start getting into your influencer tag. For us, influencer, for sure. Um, I... I can't help but think back to like the nineties and early two thousands where Range Rovers were huge and like, you know, songs and music videos, they were all over MTV at that time. I never really thought about 
whether Land Rover had any part in any of that. I thought it was more just like a status symbol, but it is important that they sort of get back to that influencer side of things for the demographics that are not necessarily what we remember in terms of like the great ads in in print magazines and stuff like that. If they're moving on up to the luxury brand, they've got to refocus their advertising. Well, their advertising took a dramatic change over the past 20 years where they you know, land rover dealerships you know to quote one person um used to be fun to go to because of the adventure styling and so on that they had now they're you know white sterile um luxury oriented places and that's quite a change all right, moving on. JLR Quartz Coders caught in big tech layoffs. JLR is looking to fill a long list of tech and engineering vacancies by appealing to victims of the recent round of Silicon Valley layoffs. In a statement published, the company owned by Tata said it was looking to fill openings by creating a new jobs portal for displaced workers from the tech industry to, quote, explore career opportunities offering hybrid working patterns, unquote. Roles it is looking to fill include those in autonomous driving, artificial intelligence, electrification, cloud software, data science, machine learning, and more. The company said it's becoming, quote, a digital first and data driven organization, unquote, in the statement. And I finally got to include the register is one of our as uh, one of our reference uh, articles here. JLR's hiring coders. In particular, it's interesting that they're really wanting to bulk up their their work in artificial intelligence. I wonder if they're going to have like a like an onboard assistant like the Alexa. In which case, they should call it Lucas. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Lucas. (laughs) Hey, Lucas, don't let the smoke out. Hey, Lucas, engage the center differential. Lucas, turn Uh, on the lights. No, sir, I will not. (laughs) I'm sorry, Harold. I can't do that now. Gentleman does not go motoring after dark. (laughs) Oh, I wish I thought of that. Oh, that's so good. Oh, that is so nice. And I think Bilari, wasn't he uh, pushing for them to become more like a tech company? Yeah, pretty much, because that's what that's what Tesla is. That's what uh, that's what cars are. GM's becoming. Yes, exactly. Cars are just tech on wheels. Yep, they always have been. Really, if you think about it, it's. Well, some, I mean, some, some sort of technology. Now, if you're saying like semi semiconductor technology, yes. Cars have always been technology that that's mobile, but tech, the four letter word, implies something different. Computers and yeah, right, you're thinking computers and automation. Yeah, right. All right, let's move on. This is a pretty cool video, although it is there's negativity to it because it is the crash test and this is the euro end cap of the crash test of the range rover 2023 model and it did score on the good news it scored a five-star rating in the crash test and this video is about six and a half minutes and it's really interesting to see the the different things that it was put through for the the crashes they do a side crash head-on crash they do the corner crash and it's just unfortunate they were crashing a defender but it's for or excuse me a Range Rover, but it's for a good purpose, and it's interesting, and it's nice to see the how the airbags deploy and how the safety systems hold up. We should point out that the five stars relate to uh, the 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 minimal injuries to the occupants, not the spectacular nature of the crash. That's the thing is, there it, it's not as spectacular as you might imagine. Well, or that's the point. The, the more stars, yeah. the more boring the crash. Yes, exactly. Well played. Yes, well done, sir. Well done. It's an inverse. Yeah, they uh, they did a uh, front impact test. 
uh, front impact test, uh, 50% of the car, side impact test, a pole test, uh, so it's propelled sideways into a rigid pole. And then there's a series of pedestrian tests are conducted. And also they do active safety tests where they to see if the uh, emergency braking works. So go check that out. Uh, there's, a, again, a video for it. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. EU has reaches a deal to ban new combustion engine cars by 2035. No new vans or cars with combustion engines are to be sold in the European Union from 2035. The Czech Republic, uh, only because they're the EU presidency uh, current holder, uh, said that negotiators from the member states of the European Parliament and the European Commission agreed that car makers must achieve 100% cut in CO2 emissions by 2035. It would effectively prohibit the sale of new cars and vans powered by gasoline or diesel in the 27-nation block. EU member states must now adopt the regulation into national law. There were no plans for a driving ban on combustion en- engine vehicles. Instead, it is hoped that all of those would eventually be replaced with electric vehicles. If I knew, because if I, if you want to build a car in Ontario, that car is dated by the date on the engine. So you can take your you know 2035 electric Defender and drop in a two and a quarter diesel and continue on if you wanted. Nothing stops you from continuing to, to use engines in, in other things if you really like to be a petrol head and so on. I just wonder if maybe uh, hydrogen will receive an exemption from that. Very good question. Because it does, you know, you mentioned petrol and diesel, but but hydrogen technology has been coming along. It might be viable by then. Well, specifically though, they are reg- This is around the regulation of CO two emissions. Right. I don't think they call out internal combustion, but that's why this article says it effectively would prohibit the sale of internal combustion. Yeah, but hi- hydrogen right. doesn't produce CO2, though. Right, so therefore, it right. Would, then then that would, it sounds like that would, it would not necessarily, it wouldn't be covered. So I wouldn't say it's an exemption. It just wouldn't be covered because it's not producing CO2. Therefore, the emissions don't need to be regulated. All right, so there right. might still be a possibility for some internal combustion mm-hmm. if it's using the right fuel. Well. Will they have the yeah. power grid to actually power all of these things? Well, there's it, that. It's good politics right now. The The actual execution of it is going to be very well, interesting. We might have more capability to, to at least fuel some vehicles with hydrogen than, than have the grid to power every vehicle with electricity. That's the other issue. <laughs> well, and, and it is far easier to start down that road in the EU where there is a lot of alternative public transportation methods um, and shorter distances and stuff like that. Whereas like U S Canada, those are, are much harder to solve. Where are trains? Where are trains? We have no trains. Yes. Here in the U (laughs) S or Canada for the most part. Speaking of electricity and electrification, ECD has built a new facility So ECD Automotive Design, the world's largest restoration company specializing in revamping classic Defenders, original Range Rover Classics, and restored Jag E-types into um, bespoke luxury builds. Pretty, this is from yahoo.com, but it pretty much reads like a press release from uh, ECD. But they have built and moved into a 100,000 square foot headquarters building in Kissimmee, Florida, dubbed the quote-unquote Rover Dome. This massive state-of-the-art facility took 13 months to complete and it exponentially scales ECD's capabilities for optimum efficiency while maintaining the exceptional quality and meticulous attention to detail. Envisioned over 
a few packs of beer by three British petrol heads with a shared love of old defenders. ECD arose from humble beginnings in 2013, initially based out of a tiny one bay warehouse. The founders worked countless 18 hour days together with a handful of staff stripping down these vintage trucks and meticulously rebuilding them. The new and improved Riverdome brings this industry leader to the next stage of its growth. Clients are welcomed to the upgraded design studio where they sit down to design their very own dream car, personalizing everything, including color body type, and the showroom features a display of the gorgeous ECD builds and either ready to ship out to their forever home or are primed for resale. The immense facility also has simulated off-road track suitable for test driving each vehicle's capability. I did. I just noticed the word simulated. I didn't read that the first time I read this article. Uh, doubled warehouse cap- uh, capacity and the scale up to two production lines with push forward manufacturing enables ECD to complete over 100 one-of-one vehicles a year, entirely in-house and then all under one roof. So that's down in Kissimmee that did that. And then Motor One test drove one of those new Tesla-powered Defenders from ECD. And uh, I'll read read a bit of that part, but there's also some pictures of the design in the vehicle and being inside that new facility. So if you want to see any of that, you can check out that. Uh, There's also about to talk about the paint, things like they have their own in-house paint booth. But as far as driving it, ECD let me behind the wheel of one of its completed Defender projects, specifically a Tesla-powered Defender 110 with a 100-kilowatt-hour battery pack and available 450 horsepower. The version of the Defender can hit 60 miles per hour in four seconds. (laughs) (laughs) And depending on how you spec it, (laughs) estimates suggest you'll get around 200 miles of range at its most efficient. But in reality, most ECD customers will only ever use about 50, 60 miles a day. So going out on the options is still part of the course, even among EV shoppers. ECD wanted each build to still drive like a classic Defender. So why why does it go zero to 60 in four seconds is that kind of doesn't fit that, but anyway. Well, maybe it just stops like an old Defender. Oh, or steers like one. Or leaks like one. After a few a few minutes on the road, this old one clearly does. Lots of body roll, truck-like steering, vagueness, and a very tall <laughs> ride height. But the immediate torque from the Tesla powertrain and the whisper quiet acceleration apart from some tire road noise, is entirely unique to any other Defender. Acceleration so quiet you can hear the oil dripping out of it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and then in the UK, Electrogenic launches new EV conversion kits for Defenders, Jaggy types, and Porsche 911s. British EV conversion specialist Electrogenic has expanded its range of drop-in EV conversion kits. The new products, which will be offered by Electrogenics, powered by Electrogenic Arm, addresses three of the UK's favorite classic cars, the Defender, the E-Type, and the 911. The drop-in kits, which were developed and engineered in-house, will be offered globally through an international network of installation partners. Each kit can be installed while preserving the vehicle's existing structure and architecture, so all conversions are reversible. All powered by Electrogenics dropped-in kits feature single-speed fixed ratio transmissions. All variants are capable of up to 6.6 kilowatt AC charging, as well as rapid CCS charging. And then there's a little more specifically here on the Defender EV conversion packages are available for all pre-2016 uh, 90s, 110, and 127 models. There are three variants. The E62 uh, 62 kit 
packs a 62 kilowatt hour battery pack supplying a 120 kilowatt water cooled motor promises a real world range of 120 miles and mixed driving the e70 and e93 packages include 70 kilowatt hour and 93 kilowatt hour battery capacity and deliver 130 150 miles of range respectively each features a 150 kilowatt motor batteries are packaged under the bonnet and beneath the boot floor so passenger and luggage space are not compromised given the amount of space underneath the back of a defender with the petrol tank and everything else gone i wonder if you could even put in more batteries you would think that seems like a natural location for it does it not especially a 110 or a 127 or where the and petrol tanks are in the on the saddle saddle tanks there's a lot of space you could put batteries in to increase that 150 mile range absolutely and if if we're one were to go as far as like in hub motors you would have even more room. So you were anticipating the next article. Thank you very much for the transition. Uh, ZF new e-axle for pickup trucks uh, features 800 volt uh, SIC inverters, SIC inverters. It's silicon, silicon carbide. Thank you. Uh, ZF has introduced an e-axle designed for class one through six pickup trucks in North America. The e-beam axle is composed of a motor, transmission, and solid axle, and the company's 800-volt SIC. What is that again? Silicon carbide. Silicon carbide inverters. Oh, that's the chips that uh, Land Rover is going to get. Right. Yes. It is intended for 400 and 800-volt systems and is capable of supporting up to 300 kilowatts and 16,000 newton meters per axle. Quote, the e-beam axle... Uh, allows for the same level of performance as traditional internal combustion engine powered pickup trucks, specifically in towing capacity, torque and smooth acceleration required for hills or steep inclines while providing quiet operation, one pedal driving and unchanged ground clearance and the ruggedness expected from a pickup truck says the company. No, no mention of cost. It's it's, certainly an interesting looking thing too. It's ZF. So if you have to ask, you can't afford it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Land Rover is really pushing the independent suspension stuff for off-road manners, so that, that doesn't work with a beam axle. Though they have used ZF over the oh, years. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of people have, but but yeah, ZF yeah. and their, their transmission provider for decades. All right, next is the 2021 Land Rover Defender 110 year-long test verdict. This is from Motor Trend. Tough to top this SUV of the year winner. Uh, We don't always miss long-term test vehicles when their year in the Motor Trend garage expires, but we certainly will pine for our 2021 Defender 110 P400 SE. Although our 2021 SUV of the year stay with us hasn't been as eventful as our 2021 truck of the year has been it's been no less enjoyable most continent crossing off-roaders are singularly focused on their missions but in the past 14 months we failed to find one thing this land rover defender wasn't good at as we suspected when our mid-grade 2021 defender 110 p100 p400 se joined our fleet this suv was in high demand among our staff as expected a lot of the uses is experienced was off-road Early in evaluation, we put to work exploring the desert of the American Southwest and a rooftop camping rig. You can read more. I'll skip ahead here. EVA, EPA rated at 1722 and 19 miles per gallon. That's city highway combined. We achieved a significant lower 15.2 miles per gallon during our 17,488 miles. We suspect much of that fuel economy disparity is due to the arrow ruining, but extremely useful, Expedition roof rack, the side-mounted gear carrier, and the roof ladder we added. When Land Rover came around to collect our 
2021 Defender. After a year, we managed to hang on to the keys for an additional two months. Simply put, we knew we'd be in the diff- an incredibly difficult to replace our SUV of the year winner with something comparable. It wasn't the most efficient nor the most software stable machine in our fleet, but none of our other long-term vehicles are as well-rounded and versatile as the Defender. Whether we called upon it for commuting, crisscrossing highways, or uh, tracking through overland uh, overland trails, this Land Rover excelled. In an era when the term SUV is increasingly watered down, our Land Rover Defender 110 was a strikingly good reminder of why Americans in general have a such an infatuation with SUVs in the first place. They're going to miss it when it's gone, and they'll be reminded of that every day by the oil spots upon the floor. <laughs> And then a kind of companion piece to that was the most comment worthy features and uh, motor trends. So the, and I'm not going to read them all, but just uh, some of them, because uh, these are things you don't often hear about the defender, at least not that I have. So you heard about the, the 2021 defender being their long-term vehicle and it was their SUV of the year. Before we officially wrap up our defenders time with us, we wanted to share with you some logbook highlights that haven't yet been covered in other updates. The roof rack is super loud at any speed above 78 miles per hour. It makes for a roaring droning noise. 78 miles an hour. I mean, Jesus, you know, it's like, talk to me when you're complaining about it being too loud above 40. And it also subtly vibrates the rear view mirror too. the editor added in. The lack of adaptive cruise control is sorely missed as well. Uh, the middle front row jump seat is nice in a pinch when you have six uh, passengers, but it makes for a mediocre center console when it is collapsed. And this person said, I borrowed the Defender to help run the off-road section of a Motor Press Guild event. I last drove a Defender at the press launch and had forgotten what a thoroughly pleasant and competent vehicle it is. The most amazing thing to me is that it is so competent off-road and yet so good to drive on-road. Vehicles like the Jeep Wagoneer and the Ford Bronco feel clumsy on-road, yet the Defender is not just competent on curvy roads, it's really good. Not quite sports car good, but certainly on the sporty end of the spectrum of SUVs. Great grip, nice steering precision and feel, and aside from a bit of body lean, very confidence-inspiring. It's almost impossible to reconcile these great on-road manners with its incredible off-road ability. The other thoughts here they have, when you have, these are shorter ones, when you have the windows open, it's strange to hear the sucking sound of the engine intake coming through the snorkel. The silly bench seat option. The center section is lousy as a seat, plus it blocks the rear view mirror, and it's awkward and space-wasting as a center armrest, yet I'd be fine with buckets in a traditional storage box. And how is it that a Toyota Corolla gets adaptive cruise control as standard, and this doesn't? Question mark. And again, I think it has to do with chips. That's my Personal yep. thought on that. Toyota gets first dibs on all the chips. The brake pedal feels a bit strange. It's kind of squishy and easy to modulate at the top, but it gets to rock hard full clamp pretty early and short in the stroke. It's still easy to brake smoothly, and it's nice to have that very firm reassurance so readily accessible. Still, I might prefer a more progressive pedal feel. I note some very serious fading of the plastic supports on the side box, and the Meridian speakers are a bit crackly. Minor annoyances, but not great indicators of longevity. And the last two here. The speed limiter is actually useful, though since our Defender doesn't have adaptive cruise control, you just set the max speed and rest your foot on the gas pedal, and it never exceeds that speed. Plus, you can slow down anytime by lifting your foot without canceling the limiter like you would if you braked while using cruise control. And then finally here, the brackets holding the exterior box to the roof are already badly fading and they're, and they're less than a year old. That just looks cheap. 
So those are some additional comments, things you may not have heard, especially after having a Defender for a year. Surprise, a British vehicle, the paint fades in high sun regions. Is that extra gearbox? At least it wasn't the paint, yes. paint but still. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, the box on the outside, when my friend, one of my friends calls those the pollen sacks. <laughs> yes. 2023 Land Rover Defender 130 review, more space, but a tight squeeze. This is from uh, Gear Patrol. As a result of its identical wheelbase, it's no surprise that the 130 drives like a 110. The increase in length and mass isn't isn't great enough to change the performance of the three-liter three turbocharged inline-six that comes standard in all but the base model and is capable of slinging it from 0 to 60 in 6.3 seconds. It's more than brisk enough for the real world. Its suspension is still soft and pliant, designed more for soaking up bumps than crisply through turns. This is an SUV where you're not likely to wind up exceeding the speed limit much on winding two-lane roads. Uh, Pivot your attention to the rear and you'll find space isn't quite as generous as that extended body might make it seem. The second row is tighter than you might expect, as in the 90 and the 110. My admittedly tall form had to wedge my feet into the footwell. The seats also uh, don't pack the same sort of comfort you'll find in the front or in the second row of many modern vehicles. The third row feels like a compromised position compared to what you find in many third row sport utes. Climbing back there requires awkward contortions. The third row seat doesn't move forward far enough to create an opening large enough for easy access. Once you're back there, things are, well, tight. Land Rover claims that third row seat can seat three across, but the narrow confines and lack of legroom make that seem like a scenario you're aimed to avoid most of the time. You do, however, get your very own skylight, which makes it feel a little less constrained back there. The cargo capacity situation also feels compromised. When the third row up, there's barely enough room behind them for a trio of large backpacks. Fold the seats down, a manual process in spite of the luxury car price tag. You're left with a substantial amount of space, but no flat load floor. The backs of the seat sits a couple inches higher than the far stern section of the cargo bay. I think that uh, non-powered seats, again, chips. If you generally plan on using uh, more than four of its seats on a regular basis, though, you'd be better served with a more traditional full-size SUV. For the price of a six-cylinder Defender 130, you could snag a Chevy Tahoe Z71, a Ford Expedition Timberline, or even a GMC Yukon Denali all of which offer more space and better seating arrangement in their second and third rows. But they're not a Land Rover. Exactly. And then there's also a video review of the same. This one's out of the UK, though. Uh, This is a video review which uh, lasts uh, almost 10 minutes. You can check that out. We'll have a link in the show notes to the 130 First Look and Drive video. And finally... We finally have come to the end of the news for this month, and Land Rover has announced winners of the 2022 Defender North American Trophy Competition. Uh, Natasha Radwan and teammate Jonathan Gunser from Los Angeles, California, win the classic V8 Trophy Works experience. Charlie Miller and teammate uh, Patrick Miller from Boston, Massachusetts, win the Bowler Rally experience. And uh, Brooks Leach, retired NHL player and outdoor adventurist, along with uh, world-class skier Chris Davenport, took part in the Defender competition with content being shared on the outside publications. So you've probably seen that in the outside publications. In each wave, there were 15 teams of two competitors. They put their skills to the test at the Land Rover Experience Center in Manchester, Vermont. So that's the results of the... That's like the best... That was like the best news we had. 
this month <laughs> was the Defender North American Trophy competition. So we've we've come a long way in this uh, time we've been together. I guess this is the end of the roller coaster. We've come into the station. Time to exit the uh, the train and and sit down and get some whiskey. That sounds like a good way to end the news. Knightsbridge Overland seat covers help protect your classic Land Rover. Whether you're on the trail or cruising around town, they're the perfect solution for protecting your pristine Land Rover seats or to cover up your well-worn and aged seats. Each seat cover is hand-cut and sewn in the USA for a custom fit that looks like it's straight from the factory. Every seat cover is crafted using durable 600 denier Cordera material. It's waterproof, oil, and dust-resistant. Knightsbridge Overland seat covers are designed to be extremely comfortable and help keep you warmer in the winter and cooler in the summer while providing protection against mud, dirt, grime, and more. Knightsbridge Overland seat covers are available for most classic Land Rovers, including Series, Defender, Discovery, and Range Rover. Select the Knightsbridge Overland seat cover that's right for your Rover. Available in both tactical and non-tactical versions in four colors, black, tan, mocha, and gray. Our tactical seat covers include military-grade Molly webbing that accommodates pouches, weapons, tools, first aid kits, and more. Non-tactical seat cover feature three handy pockets for much-needed extra storage in your Land Rover. Visit KnightsbridgeOverland.com and enter Steer 10 at checkout for 10% off your Knightsbridge Overland seat cover order. That's KnightsbridgeOverland.com. Enter Steer 10 for 10% off your order. Protect and enhance your Land Rover seats with Knightsbridge Overland. And now welcome to the Center Steer Podcast, Overlander, George Bull. Welcome, George. Thank you. How are you today? I'm doing pretty well, just staying dry. That's good. You're in New Hampshire? Yeah, I'm kind of right in central New Hampshire around the White Mountains. Beautiful area. Yeah, I can look right out onto Mount Washington, right from where I am in Chikorua and most of the White Mountain range. Are you able to uh, go on tra- other trails up there? Can you do that? Or is that? Uh... Yeah, I've got about uh, three miles of my own trails in my backyard. So I can keep myself pretty busy on those. Well, well, well. So not only do you overland, you ride on you ride trails on your own property there. Yeah, no, actually, that was originally an off-road driving school or an attempt thereof. I had it all set up for 100-inch uh, Land Rovers, like Range Rovers, um, and I cut. There were logging trails already in place. It's basically, I'm on a mountain. So, so I'm guessing it's more than the standard quarter-acre lot. Yeah, it's about 300 acres. Damn. So it's, it's a, and that's, that's what I was doing for a while, but it's very hard to, to make money being a a driving instructor on your own. And when you, if you get successful at it, then you, you all of a sudden get all kind of environmental issues. You know, as long as you're doing it under the radar, no one notices, but the moment people notice all of a sudden erosion, there are all kinds of things you have to start dealing with. How long were you trying to do that? So that, you know, I worked for Land Rover at the Land Rover Experience. So when they were setting that up in the very beginning in Manchester, Vermont, I was one of the guinea pig like uh, instructors and they were still trying to figure out the the course and, and massage that course. And so the idea was to train us while they were also kind of playing around with the trails through that i was able to go to the uk and i became a actual i'm a land rover certified instructor so you know at eastner castle i did the whole the whole training there i came back i couldn't really work for land rover because it was just too far away and 
it, it just didn't make sense. So I was trying to do my own school here, did some training here, but that just kind of wasn't going to work. So I kind of phased out of that. So let's go back. How did you get into Land Rovers? Well, the short answer to that would be overlanding. The long answer to that is uh, in 1989, I was an exchange student in Kenya. Um, and I lived in a neighborhood called Karen, which is like where Out of Africa was filmed and stuff. It's named after Karen von Blixen. And there are a lot of um, expat types. And also a lot of the people that owned the kind of safari companies lived in that area. And there was a restaurant up the road called The Horseman um, that used to be a big expat hangout. And I went there one day and in the parking lot one evening, actually it's at night, but there, there in the parking lot, there were maybe four or five Mercedes four wheel drive uh, 9-11 trucks or kind of those bullnose trucks. And the the round Mercedes nose, so they're they're truck trucks. And there were a couple of 109s, maybe three 109s. There was like a Volkswagen Iltis, and there was a BMW motorcycle. And they were all in the parking lot. And so I wasn't really into four wheel drive vehicles at that point, but they were pretty cool and they were pretty imposing, all of them there. And so I kind of asked them. I said, "What's the deal with the uh, with those vehicles?" And they said, "Oh, it's the Munich Old Boys Basketball Club is in town." And I was like, "What?" And so first I'm like trying to wrap my head around Munich. I don't, you know, basketball. And then I'm thinking, why would they be in Nairobi? So you know, I went inside, and um, it turns out it's these German guys that uh, bought surplus trucks from the German army you used to be able to get 109s there as well. And, um, they take them from Munich. One guy that was a BMW motorcycle engineer. So he worked for BMW, but they would take them from Munich, drive them down to Italy. And then they would cross over on the ferry to Libya. You can cross the Mediterranean by then you could, I don't know if you can now, but anyway, then what they would do is they would load up on really cheap diesel with 55 gallon drums. So they'd go with these Mercedes trucks, the Land Rovers, the Iltis, some of the cars sometimes didn't make it, but they would just load all those up and then they would literally just drive into the desert go through Libya, cut across Egypt, go all the way through Sudan and come out into Northern Kenya. And they basically were smuggling the vehicles, but they did the entire Sahara, no roads. I mean, this is Tom Shepard style, just no roads. They didn't go through customs. They didn't declare themselves. And the import duty on vehicles in Kenya was like 100% at the time. So these had no paperwork on them. And then they sold them at the restaurant. <laughs> and that paid for their trip. And they flew back with the one exception. The one vehicle that went back was the BMW motorcycle because that was the prototype for the Parita car. So he was on a motorcycle with those guys. So he'd be testing their new things like the you know whatever they were doing on the motorcycles and that was the run because they were just in the desert the whole time so then i was walk i'd be walking around nairobi and i'd see like a land rover or a land cruiser and it would have like you know uk plates or german plates or swiss plates you know roof rack on it usually and uh, i start talking to people i'm like well how did you know why are you here like you know you got german plates on your they're like oh we drove and then i was like you know what I'm going to do that. Um, so I went back to the States, graduated. I happened to live close to Atlantic British. 
Um, and they had a very tired 109, a, a, a 1961 series two 109 that I bought. And that my intention with that, that was like 30 years ago. And then my intention was not to actually take that through Africa, but I used that as my kind of, uh, test vehicle. So it needed everything. So I rebuilt the engine. I rebuilt the gearbox. I pulled the whole thing apart. Um, I didn't quite put it all back together again. That was kind of the first Land Rover that I had. And then I used that, uh, in North America, I tried to do a expedition to the Hudson Bay, which I did not make the Hudson Bay, but I did, according to the Cree Indians there, I did make it as far north as anybody had with a wheeled vehicle. They just thought I was nuts. Um, but we made it pretty far up. Um, how, how far so, do you recall? Um, God, it was the, it's past Hydro Quebec. So there's a, t- I feel what no, the town no was roads up that, that, that far, right? Cause I think well, Moussini, I thought. Oh, no, I was way, I forget what the town is. It had, it was like a fort something. Um, and it had a Cree name. Yeah, no, there was a road up there. So you, you get to a certain point and it's a hydro Quebec road and they have a, a checkpoint and they basically say, how long do you plan on being, it's the only way back out again. And so they're like, how long do you plan on being here? You know, and then they say, we're not going to rescue you. And who do we contact um, if you don't show up at the gate coming out? And when do you want us to start contacting people? And that's all. And then I remember it was a long road. It was like it was like 400 kilometers where there's nothing. And then they the sign, (laughs) there's a sign and it was a big sign. It said, if your tank is reading at less than half a tank, turn back now. And then it literally underlined said, you will not make it. Um, So we drove all the way up there. um, And then we got into the, I forget again, I forget the name of the town, but it's the last town you could make. I asked around and I said, you know, I want to make it to the Hudson Bay. And it was all like um, Native American Cree. And they were like, you know, first of all, they're like, why did you even bother coming up here? You know, they're like, but um, then they said, you know, you can't make it to the Hudson Bay. And I said, "Ah, I got a Land Rover. I can do it. You know, this thing will go anywhere. So um, they said, well, if you want to try, you know, there's a there's an old like snowmobile trail. You know, this was it was in the summer, but that they used to get to the to the actual James Bay. Um, and they said, you know, just follow that. And then once you hit the coast, start going north. So that's what I did. Um, the coast is more like the coast of Maine. It's pretty rocky. So it was rough going. I want to say we maybe made it. 50 miles. It took us like two days. And then it just became obvious a that, you know, we weren't, and there was like a, there was a, like a peninsula jutting out that we weren't going to make around. So we turned around. Just to pause you, what, what kind of trails are we talking about here? Is there it, no I, trail, no nothing. trails is, but is it nothing. rocky? Is just it, rocks, rocky beach. Okay. So it was swampy. So it's above the tree line. So it was like scrubby pine stuff. It was super muddy going from the town to the coast. It was just like an, they didn't even four wheel it. They just, with the four wheels, they used it in the winter for snowmobiles. So it was, it was a pretty muddy trail. And then once we got on the coast, there was no road, no trail, no track, nothing. It was just like, it went from kind of 
baseball softball size rocks that started getting up to like basketball size and that's kind of when we started slowing down and this is in a vehicle that i you know i didn't know a lot back in those days so i wanted like heavy duty everything had to be heavy heavy duty so i had like 12 ply bias ply tires i had a suspension that was out of a one ton you know i mean the Mm. thing had no axle articulation it was grinding to drive um no compliance whatsoever none none you know as a matter of fact the funny thing is what we learned on the roads were really corrugated up there and one of the things is i realized this that the previous owner had at some point taken the roof off i had never bothered to really check all the bolts and my girlfriend who's my wife now was sitting next to me and she said the roof is going to come off and i'm like oh stop it and she's like i don't think you bolted the roof on and i'm like well i never bolted it so it'll be fine and um we're just going over big bumps and stuff and then one time i look in the rear view mirror and the roof is about six inches off the back of the door and no he had only bolted the bolts to the windshield so it was literally like hinged and when you'd hit a big bump the actual roof would lift yeah. and then drop back down again and then i was like you're right you know so i think we yeah. used some bungee cords and uh got the roof back on that but uh um, first rule of buying tired old vehicles is just because you didn't unbolt something doesn't mean nobody else did oh yeah yeah yeah. no this had a lot of it just had a big i-beam welded as the rear cross member so the body also wasn't bolted on um so oh, of it course was, not because there were no bolts you know where the body normally bolts to the rear cross member there's just a big i-beam there so yeah i had done the gearbox i'd done the engine And then the other thing is we were like, wait, so there are like these roads that go off to the side as you're going down that main road, which was gravel, but then there'd be like these dirt roads and they just would say like, I'm looking at the map here of Quebec. So I'm wondering, is this, is this 11 or 117? Geez, it didn't even have a, um, I'd have to look at the map myself. There's only like one road it's in Quebec. It's, it's on the, um, Western part of Quebec and it basically goes right to Radisson. I think does that you should probably Sounds see that. Right. So Radisson is like, and then there's a village off of Radisson that's closer to James Bay. So it's all up. We definitely were on the coast of James Bay. We were well shy of the Hudson Bay though. But like I said, the, 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 the people in the village were like, you know, I don't, they're like, I don't think anybody's ever gone up that far North. They're like, there's no reason. They just thought I was a total idiot. You know, they're like, you drove all the way from New York state so that you could drive up our beach, you know, which they, they used it as a boat landing, uh, in the, in the winter mostly. And what year was this? Oh, geez. That would have been like 91, 1991. And you traveled with your girlfriend now, yep. now wife? just the, yeah, just the just the two of us. No other and, vehicle. Um, no other vehicles. Um, and, <laughs> and she's still married you anyway. Yeah, yeah. She's she's done quite a few trips with me. It was naive optimism. I mean, you know, all the things that could have gone wrong. Like, like I said, we went down that road, this chasse road, which is like a hunting road. And what we learned is the number after it referred to how far it went before it just like dead ended because all the roads dead ended. And we went down one of these roads and we went down quite a ways. I want to say like, you know, 40, 50 kilometers. And we stopped and camped in this. It looked like they maybe had used it as a gravel pit at one point. 
Uh, so it was like coarse sand. And the next morning we woke up and, you know, we had coffee and then we're on our way and I let the clutch out and the, it doesn't go anywhere. And so I assumed the wheels were spinning. So I said to my, you know, my wife, girlfriend at the time, I said, tell me which wheels are spinning. And she gets out and she goes, none of the wheels are spinning. And so I'm like, well, one Uh of them's gotta be spinning. And she's like, nope. She said, but there's some smoke kind of coming out of the bottom of the, so I'm like, all right, let me get in. And, um, it was the clutch was slipping because the rear oil seal, I put it in, it leaked. So, so I, so all the driving had kind of gotten that, that clutch face. So basically I was like, "Eh, all right, uh, brake cleaner spout up the drain plug on the bell housing and then, uh, just slip the clutch as she burns and then burn off the oil and boom. And then my wife was like, so that means we're turning around. Right. And I'm like, this is before we had gone to the Hudson. I was like, no, 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 I'm going to the Hudson Bay. So, uh, we proceeded that way, um, where I just, I'd park it nose up so that the oil would drip out of the bell housing without, um, without, uh, contaminating the the clutch. Wow. So that was, that was the beginning of my land rovering. And you obviously made it back alive and you, and enough that your relationship continued with your now wife. Yes, we did. And I want to say maybe it was Owl's Head um, where uh, my, so this Land Rover had a few other issues. Like the brakes, we used to just say were three pumps in a prayer. I mean, I, I think I put the wrong springs on or something. So it, you had to like build up pressure with the pedal before you'd actually get brakes. And it didn't idle very well either. So you had to kind of keep it revved. And I remember we were at Owl's Head, I forget what year it was, but it was, it was also like around 91, 92, somewhere in that time frame. Um, 91. And, and, um, so my, there were very few women who were driving back then. And so my wife was driving and they had, um, uh, like a corduroy setup, you know, when you have the logs zigzagged and you drive over the logs to articulate. So my wife was driving and Jeff Aronson was there and Jeff was kind of, uh, he was kind of giving her directions and he, and he said like back up. And so she backed up, but she couldn't quite, you know, she, to keep it from stalling, you really had to goose it. So she backed up and she hit a tree with a good amount of momento momentum. And then um, she put it in gear and she went across that corduroy, like she floored it. And I mean, the thing was airborne half the time. Again, I'm on one ton springs with an empty 109, you know, and I just remember Jeff said, everybody run for your lives. And uh, cause the doors were opening up on the thing and it was of like, just, they were. the body was coming off the back. And I mean, the thing was like flailing through and, and he's like a crazy woman driver. And I just remember he, and then all of a sudden, anytime she would be driving that you'd hear people on the trail going, Oh, I think that's that chicken, that one Oh nine. I heard about her. So, so yeah, that was, she kind of got into the, into the off-roading as well. Well, I guess if you can't articulate nicely over the logs, just beat them into submission. Yeah, I don't even think, I think she was just trying to save face. She didn't want to get stuck. And, you know, she she wanted to like 
kind of prove that girls can do this too type thing. And, um, and, and even Jeff Aronson was in a good natured way, but he was kind of mocking her a little bit as well. Um, kind of ribbing her. So she, she figured she'd err on the side of lots of throttle and momentum as opposed to, you know, finesse. That's more fun that way anyway. Oh yeah. No, there's, there's another a winter romp where in our 88 um, going up the power line, it was one of the years where it was really tough. And I tried it like twice and I failed and that Jeff Aronson was there as well. And he said, you know, kind of as a joke, he said, let Joanna do it. She'll make it up. And uh, she got in, (laughs) she got in and same strategy and she did make it up, but the back door to the 88, um, it was a hard top then. And the back door opened and like all our camping stuff was just, getting all over the trail, but she was not about to stop. So she made it up to the top and I kind of ran behind grabbing my sleeping bag and all our stuff. That's good strategy. The vehicle gets lighter the further up you go. Yeah. Yeah. No, she's, she's, she's a good driver. And, uh, you know, nowadays she's always like, she's reluctant to go and she's like, Oh, winter romp. And I usually do the winter romp in a daily driver. And she's always like, I don't want to ruin our vehicle. But then once we get there, she's the one like, okay, I want to drive now. Yeah. So she's, she's the one behind the wheel doing a lot of it. Once we, once we start getting into the thick of things. Sounds like we should have had her join you uh, on the podcast today. Yeah, no, she's, she's, uh, she definitely does. You know, she's, we're now more into like family camping and overlanding as opposed to off-roading and all the off-roading has always been associated either with events or for, uh, overlanding. So I don't really, I don't know. I, I, I guess we do some trails and stuff, but really the point of our trails is to get somewhere. Um, it's not just to do the trail as the final end. So what happened after the 1961 109, what, what, what Rover happens next? So that ties in back with the Kenya story. I was determined to to get back and do a Trans Africa. So I kind of learned how to wrench a Land Rover. That 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 vehicle kind of served its purpose. And I went to the UK and I bought a right-hand drive 101 forward controls. That was a soft top. Oh yeah. I, I really wanted a 110 TDI. Those just had come out. So this is like end of 92. So I wanted a TDI, but I didn't have enough money. Um, The 101, they weren't very expensive and it was in like mint condition. Um, It was a direct. I think it's the other way around. Yeah. Although, yeah, yeah. People are beginning to appreciate 101s. So then I was with a friend of mine who was um, a South African, a white South African guy who was had family living in London. So we outfitted the 101 in Hammersmith, which entailed buying a lot of jerry cans and some two by fours and a sheet of plywood. And that was the extent of our overlanding modification. So I, I ended up living in that truck for two years it never had air conditioning, never had a radio, never had a fridge, all the stuff that people think uh, didn't even have a hard top on it. You know, the, it, I had the squatty seats on it. Biggest change I did to it was I painted it in Spain with hammerite. Um, I had to paint it green, but it was in camo and you weren't allowed to drive camo vehicles through Africa. So I had to paint it on a campground. 
probably a safety measure, I would, I suspect. Yeah, you don't want to be mistaken for military, even though I was a couple times, sometimes for better. So we we kind of outfitted that vehicle, um, real bare bones budget. I didn't have a lot of money. So, you know, I would have loved to have gone the whole, I would have loved a fridge. You know, this was pre-GPS days. So really, no, except for military, no one had GPS and it still had that error thing on it. The idea was to make it to Cape Town. Um, and we left London, I want to say like, right. Yeah. At the end of 92 and that 101, um, drove it. Yeah. Geez. I drove it, uh, through Europe to, uh, Morocco, the Western Sahara, Mauritania, Senegal, Gambia, Guinea Bissau, Guinea, Liberia, Ivory coast, Burkina Faso, Nigeria. The So the Western side of Africa. Uh, no, then I went Cameroon, Zaire, Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania, Malawi, Mozambique, Botswana, Namibia, South Africa. So, so, so that journey was brought to you by the letter S. Yes, yes. That was a, <laughs> that was a long, that was a, it was a, it and it. Not the most direct route north to south. No, but it was the only, you know, it was the last of an era. It was the last time shortly after I did that, though that route basically closed down, but that was the classic, uh, say from the 19 late sixties to the late eighties, early nineties, that was the classic route. Normally you would have gone through Algeria as well. Um, and I wouldn't have gone through Mauritania, um, but Algeria had already become dodgy and, um, you know, it was dodgy when I was going through there. So it was not really safe, but you didn't know that as much then because there was no internet, there was no, you know, Google earth. Um, I mean, I literally, I was in the middle of the desert in Mauritania and I mean, we literally got dropped off on a, on a train and so we were just, it's one of the longest trains in the world. It's a, it's a, a coal train and it goes into the desert and it comes down full and then it goes back up empty. And when it's empty, you can get on a, a railroad car. So I put the one one on a railroad car, but they're, they literally, there's just a little bend in the track where, it, where it goes from going due East to kind of Northeast. And they stop there. They just unrolled you know, they just basically put a ramp out. They, we, we got off. And then all of a sudden you're in the middle of the Sahara desert and there's nothing. And I got a Michelin map, you know, that has about as much detail as if you had a map of the United States and you're trying to navigate, you know, on one paper map. So we basically did a good section of that. The same thing. It was like, we just followed a mountain range. There were were no roads. There were no, trails. It was kind of, it wasn't the type of Sahara that you think of like with big sand dunes and stuff. It was mostly kind of like you out in Utah, you know, kind of the ground is relatively hard kind of, and the sand kind of has a crust to it. So it's not like an extreme, you know, going through deep sand and over sand dunes, or at least that section, but it was, it was pretty remote and it, and, and you just no GPS, no way. And the thing is, is that we had enough fuel, we were going to hit a road and then the road goes to the Capitol and the road apparently was paved. 
what we learned is that a the roads there the sand blows over them so you can't see them and b paved roads just uh, you know disappear they erode they break into gravel and they get and people move around they don't once the gravel road breaks up everybody drives on one side or the other and then they so these roads end up becoming really ambiguous to say the least but we had enough fuel to make that road and then make it to the capital but if we overshot the road and we didn't realize that we had passed it because again we don't have gps and we're just doing this with the odometer um and we're not oh my yeah, and a compass. And it's but you also don't have you're doing it with the odometer on a British vehicle. Yes. Let's, yes. Let's add that detail. Yes. And and not only that, you're not driving in straight lines, right? Because it's all avoiding soft areas and stuff. So so then we got to a point where we thought we should have come across the road and we hadn't. And then we're like, well, if we overshot the road then we're going in the wrong direction and we're burning through our fuel. Cause again, I've got a stock Rover V8 in this thing. Oof. And, and, yeah, and so then it's like, okay, do we turn around? But if we haven't made the road, then if we turn around, it's the same problem, right? So then you start to really, let's put it this way. The friend that I was traveling with after we made it to pass Mauritania and we got to the Gambia, he, he bailed out. He was like, this is just too stressful for me. And, it, and he's like, it wasn't what I was expecting. So he kind of had a breakdown. I mean, I was pretty nervous too, but um, again, it was kind of like this naive optimism or whatever. I thought, you know, I, I, I'd gone to the Royal Geographic Society and I'd researched all this stuff and I had done all these Land Rover things and courses and I know this stuff. So, so I had more faith in myself than, than my friend had in me. So, he, you know, he was kind of looking at me going, I can't believe I'm in the middle of the Sahara Desert with this guy. So he kind of had a hard reset at that point. Are you still friends? Uh, yeah, yeah. We're, we're, you know, he ended up settling down in the Gambia and, uh, that's where he lived for quite a while. And then I also was kind of stuck in the Gambia for a little while. And then I picked up some hitchhikers and we did most of West Africa and, but everybody started dropping off because of malaria. So by the time I got to the central African Republic, it was just me. Um, so I was more like it would be more like akin to a motorcycle i mean i had basic stuff sleeping bag and it was just me and i was crossing zaire but i also had malaria but i couldn't fly home so i had no option if i left i would have abandoned the vehicle and everything so I had a weird strain of malaria that happened. Normally it's a 24 hour cycle and mine was a 48 hour cycle. So you feel fine for a day and a half and then you start to get uh, like really stiff. And then you, I knew I was going to get sick. So then it's find a place to pull over where there's nobody around. So this is kind of in the jungles of Zaire, but people are miraculously everywhere as well. So it's hard to kind of find a place because then I would be incapacitated for about eight hours. So I just made sure I had fresh water. You just get increasingly sick and then splitting headache, sweating, shivers, that kind of stuff. And then you, you kind of peak and then you start getting better. And, you know, six hours later, you know, you're, you're back on the road again, but that was, that was kind of the toughest part. And that I was pretty much 
And you're on your own. Yeah, there's wow. nobody. Um, and nobody knows where I am. So, mm. you know, the, I, my, I don't think I talked to my family. The last time would have been in Central African Republic. It, it used to take, you know, making a phone call took all day long. You went to the post office, you waited in line with tons of other people. You argue with it when you, when it was your turn, you had to like pay in advance. So you first had to go to like a little kiosk and pay for like 20 minutes. And then you'd have a little receipt and then you'd be arguing with the operator trying to connect you because they didn't really take a lot of effort. And then, you know, the worst thing is if like somebody answered and they either hung up because they thought it wasn't the, you know, and then I paid that money and you lost your place in line and you got to go back again. So, yeah, I mean, my, my family, they didn't know where I was for weeks at a time. Um, you know, and we do mail with a thing called, um, post restant. And that's where you take a person's name and you mail it to the capital of each country. And, and, and then what they do is and you put post restant on it. You can probably still do this to this day. So that when I go to the capital, you go under B's for bull, my last name. And then I'd see a letter for George bull and it would, and my mom would just send them to like, all the capitals, you know, or like wherever she thought I approximately was. Um, and then I'd normally write a letter back and post it there and she'd probably get it like three weeks later type thing. So yeah, at least you were able to do some communication back to home. Yeah. And I, and every, and those phone calls, you know, when you got into the capital, so those phone calls usually work, you know, so that was, it was definitely possible to get in touch with people, but just not easily and not regularly and not cheaply either. No, it was very expensive. And how long did this take, this Trans-Africa trip? It took about two years. Okay. Um, so, like, for example, when I was in the Gambia, that that I was there for, like, a couple of months, not, like, a couple of days. So, um, and then I spent quite, since, for me, coming from Uganda back into Nairobi was, like, coming home. It was, like, because all of a sudden I knew the place. Um, you know, it was all familiar. I had friends there. So I spent, and my wife then met up with me in Nairobi and we did that last leg from Nairobi to Cape town together. So we spent a good three months just in Nairobi, just living on campgrounds, hanging out, doing stuff, getting the truck reprepped, that kind of stuff. Getting the roof bolted back on. Well, yeah, no, this was a soft top 101. So that was, yeah. th that was more like, you know, just doing spring cleaning and I'd accumulated all kind of junk that I didn't need anymore. Um, and we had a lot of friends. So we spent a lot of time doing stuff like driving in the Maasai Mara, driving through, you know, the Serengeti, uh, but not, they were more like weekend trips and we'd come back into Nairobi type thing. So we did a lot of game driving in Kenya and we had a lot of friends who are kind of in the uh, like tour industry, you know, they have the, the, um, the lodges and stuff. So we, we, we had time in, in Kenya to just kind of play around. And then we continued on to, uh, to South Africa. How unique is the one one in Africa? So it was pretty interesting. There were about four or five that the that the Brits brought to Kenya. So and the and the British ended up giving those to the Kenyans. And there was one guy people used to mistake me for him. There was one guy who had driven a 101 from um England to Kenya. He was a 
Kenyan expat. He had done that about a year or two before me. So there, those were the only ones. But then the irony is, is I bought my 101 from, of all things, Crook Brothers. I mean, that that was their, <laughs> their name. So I, I bought it from... <laughs> From the crooks, my license plate number was A869REO, and I was in Namibia and I saw a, a 101, and it was like A868REO, and he had bought it um, from Crook Brothers as well. And they had actually registered the, the, when they got them from the army, they had registered them on the same day. So they got like the plates. He had his ship to Namibia um, and used it as a, so it was a tour you know, he put seats in the back and it was like for, I think, I think he was in Atosha, but, uh, that was the only one ones or not that many one ones driving around in Africa. Not, it's not most people's mm-hmm. first pick. There's not that many one ones anywhere, really. No, no, they're, they're, they're pretty rare. And I'm, I'm, you know, I was at one point tempted when I got back, you know, when I was driving through Africa, I was like, Oh, you know, disc brakes, diff locks, you know, TDI engine in it. And I was really tempted to go through and heavily modify it, but I decided not to do that. And I'm, you know, I'm kind of glad. So mine's pretty much still all stock. It was a rapier missile carrier. And I still have the, like the storage harnesses to carry four uh, rapier missiles in the back. I, I, save that stuff. Weren't those a little beefier than your, than your ordinary 101s? I don't think so. I think the 101s for the most part were, you know, besides the, the variations in the bodies. Um, I think that running gear was all the same. And I think the spring rates were all the same. They were okay. kind of unique. They have parabolic springs. So they're just two leaves. Um, so that was Land Rover's, I think only foray into parabolics as stock um, right but they didn't even though they were parabolics they did not articulate well it had it, it has terrible wow. it needs weight so it was good when it was heavy the advantage to that truck was like in the sand it was awesome because the power to weight ratio is really good so especially you got to think back i mean nowadays everybody's getting like crazy horsepower out of everything back in those days you know, it was competing against two and a quarter liters and two and a half liter diesels, you know, and Unimogs and other vehicles aren't very powerful either. So it, it, uh, it had a fair amount of horsepower in it and, and you could really rev it. Whereas with a, with a, you know, a diesel vehicle, you've got that low end torque, but your spectrum of RPMs is a lot smaller. You can't rev it out, you know, before you have to shift gears, especially in the early diesels. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, and that's mostly what we saw, you know, it was mostly series one Oh nines that were bought at German auctions and stuff. And, and from the UK, that was the other overlanding vehicle of choice. They were cheap. I mean, the whole concept of overlanding has changed so much. Like, I mean, I remember like the first kind of rooftop tent I saw was a guy who had a tent on his roof and he just set the tent up on his roof, you know, and we're like, wow, you know, and we all, none of us had money, you know, so it was, everybody was on a low budget because with overlanding like that, you, you either need, you need a lot of time or you need a lot of money. You know, it's like, 
either have to be a millionaire where you can afford, but most people who have the money don't have the time. And most people who have the time don't have the money. So it, and that's what you got is you got the extreme. So every now and then, you know, you'd see this Unimog where literally like people are drinking wine and cooking pasta and they've got a shower and, you know, they've got like a hundreds of thousands of dollar vehicle. Um, and then the next person next to them is like someone like me, who's like, you know, picking grime out of my hair. Cause I haven't had a shower for two weeks and, you know, I'm eating like whatever, you know, that, you know, I can remember I had bush meat at one time and I said, well, what's the bush meat? And they were kind of like, yeah, uh, you don't want to know. Yeah, no, they, they, they were, they were, I think, I don't know what I was eating, but yeah, they were just kind of like, it could be multiple things, including possum, you know, monkey, all kind of stuff. Do you know more about the history of the military history anyways, of your 101? Not much. It was uh so it was like a fire unit truck. I'm pretty sure it was an RAF vehicle and it carried, and it, yeah, and it, and it was, it, it pulled a, a rapier missile system. Um, I don't think they really used it much. Do you know where it served? I don't, okay. you know, it was one of those things where at the time when I wanted to find that out, when I bought it, it was really hard to do that research. Hmm. You know, now I, now. yeah, you know, and I probably, now that we bring it up, I'd be curious to learn more about its history. I mean, I was, so it went directly, it was released. Um, so it would have been released right about that time. So say 91 or 92 is when the, the, the Brits would have released it. And then it was bought by the crooks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, those guys, yeah. Yeah. Those guys. Or um, it was appropriated by the crooks. <laughs> yeah. No, they, they, they ended up, you know, they bought it at a, you know, at they were legit. They're actually quite nice and they outfitted a lot of people, but um, they didn't register it in their name. So they just owned it. And then when they they sold it, it went directly. So I still have a UK registration in my name for that truck. I never pulled it off the road. So or rather I did. It's got the plates the so it's in a status where it doesn't have its road tax mm -hmm. um so as far as the uk knows it's still somewhere in the uk because i never did any export paperwork normally if you go to like a port or something um the uk customs will you know notify that the vehicle is no has been exported but because we just drove away so where is the truck it's here it's in <laughs> so i still have it still on holiday from the yeah person yeah. Perseverance. It's, uh, it's, we, I named it perseverance Percy for short. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I, I couldn't part with that. That's like, that was a wedding truck. You know, when we got married, we used that. Um, that's, that's an integral part of like my whole identity. Like I said, I, you know, I, I spent two years and the, the stuff that I went through in that thing was like, you know, life changing, life forming. Uh, and and did uh, Joanna? How did she enjoy the overlanding in Africa? She, you know, she loved it as well. Um, you know, and we've gone back, not in Land Rovers, but we just now we have two kids. We went back um, and did Botswana, and I did the Kalahari in a Land Cruiser. We wanted to rent a Land Rover, but they're not renting those out anymore. So um, we do, we still do overlanding. Um, this last summer, we I took. So I also have like an LR3. We took the LR3. I do stuff with the Overland Expo, so I had to go to the expo anyway. Um, so I drove out to Colorado, met those guys, my, my wife, my son, and my daughter, 
And then we have like a rooftop tent on that. And we drove, you know, San Juan mountains, all the high mountain passes kind of dipped into Utah. And, and we never stayed in, we stayed in a hotel once for one night. Um, the rest of it was just either uh, kind of wild camping or camping in uh, state parks. So, you know, it's we still do that. We love that. And we're trying to get our kids involved in that. But, yeah, you know, we it was a little different. Like one of the we were kind of just talking about like winching and tires and stuff. We were it, when we were in the 101 in Africa, we were in Namibia on the skeleton coast and you're not allowed to really drive the skeleton coast anymore. But um, we were almost at the border with Angola and we, again, these are back in the day when you could just do this kind of stuff. We just drove, we just drove due West through N Namibia. Um, and that's where you get dramatic sand dunes and stuff. And then we got onto the coast and there was a road, a track along the coast. It, it runs the whole, like from Wal Walvis Bay all the way to basically Angola. And a lot of Namibia was mined at that time. Um, but the, the, the coast was definitely not mined. So it was actually a relatively safe route to take. Uh, but it's, again, it's like hundreds, if not even a thousand kilometers, it's long. Um, and so we came from the north and we were going south to get to Walvis Bay. We were driving along the coast and the, there's a, tr a track kind of inland, say 100, 200 yards inland from the actual coast. And it's soft sand and I was burning through fuel. And, you know, you're sitting right next to the engine in the 101. So that thing was getting hot because we're going slow. And I'm looking at the coast just about, a hundred, you know, 100 feet, 150 feet. And I can see that nice hard sand, you know, where the water's coming up and it's receding. And I, I was like, you know what? We have to do this for a couple of days. I'm going to just go out onto the to the sand. And I we got onto the sand. And now all of a sudden, instead of going like 20 miles an hour and struggling, we're trucking along at like 40 miles an hour, nice and smooth. It's like driving on tarmac. Been doing that for about an hour. And I'm thinking to myself, those idiots, like, why would anybody in their right mind drive down a trail on the side? I'm like, a bunch of people just don't know how to drive. Of course, I, again, I'm Mr. Know-it-all, right? So <laughs> we we keep going. And then all of a sudden, it's like this, the power just gets sucked out of the, and I'm just stopped, like just stuck. And I'm like up to the axles. And I literally, we hit quicksand. Um, which is kind of like, so when you're driving along the beach, you see the water, you see that sheen, but what was actually happening is the tide was coming up and the sand actually gets super suspended in the water. So this is almost like a water hole that's got sand floating in it as the tide's coming up. So from when you're looking at it from the driver's seat, it looks identical to the rest of the wet sand. But once you get into it, mm -hmm. it's like this really soft, silty, suspended sand. And all of a sudden we were down to our axles, the tides coming up and we're, you know, oh, yeah. we're like 300 kilometers from the next place where there's a town and we can hadn't I, seen Can a I panic yet? Can I panic yet? Oh, and let me tell you. So I had the winch. So the one-on-one's winch comes front and rear. So I had the winch lined up to the rear and 
I was like, we've got one chance at this. And I just told my wife, so we, we cannot pussyfoot around. We have to get the sand ladders out. We have to start getting this thing out of the sand. And, um, I, I hooked onto something. I didn't have time to bury a tire or anything. And it was like, we got to get as least resistance. Cause what I, I think I was like tied to a, I was like anchored to a shrub. And I was like, if, if this, if we pull too hard, it's going to come out and we got one go at this. The nice thing about the 101 is that the winch is, is synchronized to the gearbox. So when you, go out in gear. Um, and I think it was f- second low or maybe first low. It's a real close. So you give it more gas, the winch pulls faster. You let off the gas. The, so you can, you can go in gear. And I was like, I told her, I said, I was just literally digging and trying to make a path. Um, and she was just bringing it back. And every time you could see the water coming up, it was like the tide was just coming up, coming up, coming up. And we were just backing out and like just winching it out slowly. And then she'd bog down a little. And I was like, all right, don't try to get out. We pull the sand ladders, redig, get the ramp going again, do it again. And I mean, it, it was pretty cool because it was kind of camel trophy stuff. I mean, it was really like there was something on the line. We had to use teamwork. Like there was no, you know, and we just had to fall into place. There was no like, I don't want to do that. Or what do you think? You know, she was just like, all right, I'm going with your plan. We're doing it. Let's go and tell me what to do and when to do it. And uh, we got out, you know, just literally in time. How long did it take? It probably took about an hour maybe somewhere in that neighborhood, less 40 minutes, you know, it was right as it was, it was more just that immediate, you know, you got to do it. But I'll tell you, there's another time I got stuck and it was for the same sort of reason. And this is with my friend. um, This is before we went through Mauritania. We were in the Western Sahara, which is South of Morocco and was disputed. It's still disputed, but at that time it was much more disputed. And there was kind of a cold war going on there, like a non-shooting war between this group called the Polisario and the, and the Moroccan uh, uh, military. And very few people went through there because everybody went through Algeria. So we were actually one of the first non-governmental people who were issued a, like a, a, a permit to drive through that area to get to Mauritania. And it was the same type of thing. We're driving down this road that's all sandy and it's got these, it's, it's the worst kind of sandy trail you can get. Cause every now and then there'd be this rock, you know, so you couldn't, you got to keep your momentum, but then you have to slow down for these big rocks. And I look next to me and there's this like salt pan and it's just as flat as concrete. And this is in my really early days. So in Namibia, I should have known better, but at this point I didn't know any better. And I'm like, I'll get out onto that salt pan. And, uh, same thing. It's just like driving on concrete. I mean, it's rock solid and we're buzzing along. And, um, the, the, pan kind of started getting farther and farther from the road, but we figured we could drive down the pan for maybe like 50, 60 miles and hook back up with the road again. So we're on this salt pan in this valley. It's just with hills on, not mountains, but just small hills on either side. Again, kind of think Utah and we get stuck and the salt pans are like, it's like a pie crust, right? The top is nice and hard, but right underneath it is wet sloppy, salty mud clay. And it's clay. It's like play. It's just the slipperiest, greasiest stuff. And the challenge is once you break through it, you can't, you got to get up above it again. So this stuck 
ended up being three days long. But but in the process, what happened is we're in three the, days. Yeah, it took us three days to get out. Uh, because at least there was no tide coming in. No, there was well, but there's a catch to this story. So so this one was bury the tire because there was nothing. So we that took almost a half a day right there. And then I had two sand ladders, but we needed more than two sand ladders to come out. We need because the you know, if you put the sand ladders on the back wheel, you'd get that up, but the fronts would just keep dragging. And it and it took it, it it's like a suction. I mean, the stuff, and then when the sun gets on it, it gets hard. So even with the winch, it's like, it, you know, the winch would just stall, like it had a clutch on it. So it was a lot of digging. And then it was walking around getting flat rocks and like, and using those as a sort of a ramp so that you'd come up and, and, and use the rocks, but just getting the rocks took quite a bit of time. But the second day in, in the afternoon, again, this was with my, my friend who I started the trip with, I don't know, we were breaking for, for lunch or something. And this old guy and a boy, a little boy and this old guy come walking over out of seemingly nowhere. You know, we think we're like totally in the, middle of the Sahara desert, but they walk over and the guy. So my friend spoke French, the little kid spoke a little bit of French and the guy says to the kid, you know, you guys have to go. And so the boy saying, you have to go, you have to leave here. And we're like, yeah, we know that we're trying, you know, <laughs> or we're stuck. And, you know, and, and he's like, then the old guy's like, no, no, you don't understand. You really have to just not be here. Well, there's nothing we can do about it. And so he had a walking stick and he put his walking stick like he raised it up in the air and he points to one of the ridge lines. And all of a sudden, this like tactical truck comes up. It's like a French. It looks like the Toyota Land Cruisers with the machine gun, but it was a French truck. And there's a guy holding a machine. He's like right on the roll bar with the machine gun. He's got like a turban around him. And then you see like four other guys stand up with AK 47s. And then the old guy shows us the other side, the other. And on that side is the Moroccan, a bunch of Moroccan army guys stand up. And we were like on a line, uh, like a ceasefire line. Right. And mm. all of a sudden you get this one-on-one forward control with these two white guys that get stuck and they didn't know what was going on. And none of them would come down because they would have got fire from the opposing side. Right. So what they did is they just took a two obvious non-combatants, a little boy and an old man and that puts some get up and go into our motivation for getting unstuck. Um, you think they didn't offer to help you at all? No, no, no one was going to go in there because they're, they're like borderline, but um, they, the Moroccans, we were really worried the Moroccans were going to, um, you know, once we got out of there, we were going to get like arrested or something, but they, they ignored us. They didn't, they didn't hassle us. So once we got out of there, we're like, okay, we're, that's, these are some of the reasons my friend kind of like freaked out. Cause we had situations like that. And he's like, now we're sticking to the road, you know? And I'm like, Oh, but I want to go off roading. He's like, I want to get there alive. You were in the middle of a, of almost a firefight. Well, yeah, it's just, yeah, yeah they, they, I, that line probably is still there. They just, you know, they're not, they were not openly combatant. So there, there was no fighting going on, but likewise, everybody was kind of holding their ground. 
Nobody's going to venture into no man's land to help you out when you get stuck there, though. No, exactly. Well, the, and then the funny thing is, is we were one of the first kind of whatever you want to say, non-governmental agencies that went into Mauritania. Um, and that's how we were able to that's why we were allowed to go across Western Sahara. And when you get to Mauritania, they said, well, we're going to you're going to go in a military convoy and we're going to take you to the border because it's mined. And so I'm imagining a military convoy like there's going to be some trucks, you know, some. Ar- and- yeah. Or just, you know, at least some decent army truck type things. And um, hmm. we get there and there are a bunch of young guys and a guy in a like a jogging suit. They go into your vehicle. Right. So it's not like you're getting escorted. And so I. They looked at the and I had we had the most serious truck because the rest of it was actually like aid organizations with white Toyota pickups and the military guy who was in charge, who was the one wearing the jumper suit, like the track suit. He's like, uh, you know, you're going first, you're leading the way and I'm sitting next to you. So within like two minutes, he's like, where's the air conditioning in this? And I'm like, it doesn't have air conditioning. And he's like, does it have a radio? And I'm like, I don't have a radio. And all of a sudden he says, stop. So we stop. He gets out and goes to one of the trucks that has Airco. And he gives, he brings in a young guy, um, an army guy that was in the vehicle that was behind me. So now we have a military, they just swapped. And so I'm sitting next to this young guy who doesn't speak much. And I didn't really, he spoke some French, but um, I didn't speak much French, but I, and my friend was in the back. So he was just like, because the military guy had to sit. They weren't going to like sit in the back. It was just a big bed. The French speaker wasn't driving my friend, the guy, the guy that's, that's guiding us through this minefield. It's like, and I'm like, I don't even get left and right. I I get it mixed up Mm. in English, right? Like, you know, my wife's always saying, no, the other right. And so Mm. now you got to keep speed going. And the guy is going like, and I'm like, oh my God, I can't keep track of all this stuff. And we're, because you can't stop because it's all soft sand. And, um, and then he's like, Shamel, poof, you know, he's like pointing like where uh, camels hit the landmines and stuff. And, and I was like, oh man. So, so we, um, we got through that whole thing. And then um, they dumped us off at the Mauritanian border. The army guys all walked back. And then the Mauritanians didn't know what to do with us because they were not used to stamping people's passports. So they, um, you know, locals would cross the border, but they didn't, no one ever had a passport. You just kind of cross the border. And so they arrested us because they didn't know what to do with us. And they, we drove in convoy into, I was getting Natty Boo in Nakshot. I think it was um, Nakshot. Uh, it's the town farthest north. It's right along the border. An, a convent, a Catholic convent. And so they were instructed to keep us prisoner in the convent. And they were like these Italian nuns. And they're like, what did you do? And like, you know, why are you here? And we're like, we're just, you know, driving to Africa. Yeah, exactly. And they were like looking at us. So and then we were like locked in this this convent for for like a day until some they and they had taken our passports and all our documentation and stuff and uh until finally like a police officer came back and they found somewhere where they could stamp our passport because we had valid visas which were actually really really hard to get so to do a land crossing mauritania did not issue visas 
over land only by plane. Well, that explains their confusion. You were trying to do something legally. Yeah. 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 And it was, it was, it was kind of funny. So, and, but then you're in that town and that town's not connected by road to any other town. And that's when we ended up um, taking that train because we had two options. You either drive along the coast, which is a smuggling route, but the way that works is you're literally driving along the coast and, and you have to know you can get into these coves when the tide comes up and park. And, and so you need time the the tides and you need to know where all these coves are and obviously we didn't know any of that and there were guys there that were willing to be our guides but other people were saying to us you know i wouldn't trust that guy you know because they're all these guys are all smugglers right you don't know if they're going to just leave you stranded take your vehicle um so it was really dodgy the surefire way was to take the train but like i said the train just takes you right into the middle of mauritania and then it just drops you off that's that was our option we took the train no wonder your friends like had enough i can uh yeah there's a lot going on there <laughs> yeah after that yeah it got it got um it got dicey uh, there and then the malaria was was tough he he didn't get malaria um but the people i was traveling with um all ended up getting malaria, including myself. The funny thing about the malaria is that um, eventually your body, you build up a, a sort of immunity and it stays dormant in your body. So there's this myth that you have malaria for life. In this day and age, you don't, you know, you can medically treat it, but before they could medically treat it, it kind of goes in your, your immune system can kind of keep it in, in, in check. And that's what happened with me is I never took any medication. I just got better. I was young and I forgot about it, so to say. And then um, it came back in South Africa and I was really, really uh, sick in South Africa. And a friend of mine took me to uh, the hospital, which is like the Tigerberg hospital, which was actually where the first heart transplant was done as a little side. They were asking me like, so, you know, how often are you getting sick? And so I was like every 48 hours. And they said, uh, you know what? you're the first person alive that has this strain of malaria. And this is right after um, apartheid ended. So they were getting um, migrant workers from West Africa, where I picked this up, who were coming down to work in the mines in South Africa. Those guys don't go to the doctors until it's way too late. So anybody that got this malaria, most of them probably, you know, just like me, they probably recovered. But the ones that didn't recover were dead. So they said, we'll give you free medical care. Um, if you allow us to do like a transfusion and keep some of your blood um, so that we can learn more about this particular strain. So I had that. So, yeah, they like put me on. They kept me through one more cycle um, and they took a lot of my blood and then they, you know, gave me another blood transfusion. And I was in the pub that night. <laughs> <laughs> But, but yeah, I mean, it's amazing how, how once, once you get it out of your system, how, how quickly you, you can recover from, especially when you're like 22 or 23 yeah, or however. That, that helps. It helps to be young and indestructible. Yeah, no, it's like, even now when I try to get into the 101, I'm like, oh man, it's. How high up is the 101? So it's about, it's about three and a half feet, I'd say. So it's a, it's, it's definitely up there, right? Cause you're right above the front wheel. And now it's even higher because I ran after I got back from Africa, I got, uh, 1116 XCL. So that's normally it's a nine, yeah. 916 tall tires. Yeah, they are. 
And so, and they're really hard to turn because there's no power steering in a one-on-one. So you literally cannot mm. turn the wheels unless it's moving. So like to do a, a three-point turn, you kind of got to rock forward, crank the wheel, roll back, crank the wheel. But, but you yeah, have so to do those three-point turns about 12 times to get turned around. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't really good turning radius. I mean, it, what it was really good for is it's super space efficient, right? So you had all that. I was shorter than a 109. I had more room than a 109. I was halfway in between an 88 and a 109 because there's no overhang. The other nice thing about it was that because even with the 916s, the standard tire in Africa is like a 750-16. So I was a little taller. One thing that made it hard to drive, though, is that it's wider than a Land Cruiser or a Land Rover. So I don't fit in the ruts. So you are you always have like one wheel kind of wanting to bounce out of the ruts, especially like in Zaire and, and Cameroon and stuff. You'd be moving along and all of a sudden like one of the tires would suddenly really catch traction on the other side and you pop out of the ruts and before you know it you're on the side of the road but no it was it it served me well um i didn't the only mechanical problem i had was that it's a 24 volt and i didn't want to use the 24 volt ignition so it wasn't a protronics ignition but it was an electronic ignition that you could get in the uk for the v8 but not for the 24 volt so i had to modify the voltage to 12 volts to run the protronics and then this also happened in mauritania the engine started to cut out and it had all kind of issues and it was because i was using a common ground i later figured out i was grounding the 12 volts to the 24 volt system and that didn't play nice with the electronics so mm. i fried out the uh the ecu or whatever the protronics type thing the nice thing about it was is i had the points so i went back to points but that's doing that repair and trying to diagnose it like it was like 115 degrees in the day and it went down to like 95 degrees at night and it was just so hot and there was nobody again i was with my friend and he was like he didn't understand how ignitions worked and stuff and he didn't really have faith that i was going to get us out of there and i was actually kind of nervous too but um but that was the only problem i had with it other than that you know it's a pretty bulletproof setup and the steering box now on it is a bit um wonky and there there that's one of its weak links um so that I, i've got a spare one that i bought like years ago that i'm hoping you know is somewhere in storage that i'm hoping hasn't like sat under like a wet you know like condensation and stuff and is all rust so you know over the years i I used to hoard parts well i still hoard parts but i used to hoard parts that were like brand new and that was 15 years ago and now that i need it i'm like oh why did i leave it under a tarp in my backyard for you know and so it's basically hmm. useless now are the steering boxes rebuildable on those like they are um, on the series trucks yeah to a degree but it's the it's the um it's like the worm oh yeah and once that wears out, it's right. it's yeah. hard to to kind of fix that. And I, it's probably I haven't pulled it apart. It's probably all bearings and stuff. It's probably other than that, it's probably not that bad. But they're just overworked. Um, yeah. It's 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 not a it's about the size of a series steering box. So it definitely works hard, especially with those thirty six inch tires. Yeah. No, well, when I, I ran it was like I said, it was totally stock when I ran it. So it was just the 916s, which are 
I think le- what are 916s? They're like 30. I think they're like 33s. Yeah, Still yeah, a big so, tire. Yeah, oh yeah, it's a big tire, and I was relatively heavy, and it was ru- I was on rough roads. I was constantly, you know, I rarely drove on tarmac, so it was mostly corrugated gravel, and that's just brutal on everything. It was reliable, and and it crappy fuel economy, but really good power. It ran on fuel really well. So, I mean, some of the fuel that I bought was, I don't know what it was. It wasn't gasoline. That's for sure. It wasn't diesel. The way you'd buy it sometimes is a guy would have a 55 gallon drum and you bought it in one liter Coke bottle per one liter Coke bottle. That's how you measured how much you got. And the test, if it was good gasoline is they take a little bit of it on their fingertip and kind of splat it on your tire and show you that it evaporates. And, and that was, that's what was the sign of a high quality fuel. So, you know, I'd have sometimes it would be knocking pretty bad and I'd have to like ease back on the timing for that tank of fuel, but it still burned it. It, it still, still did it. Sometimes you wonder if they drank all the Coke out of the bottle first before they started putting gas in it. Yeah. Well, you, so, yeah. Sourcing some of the fuel was, was a, was a dodgy endeavor in its own right. Um, you know, like in Nigeria, the, the, the fuel was like silly cheap. It was like a couple cents a gallon, but you couldn't get it because everybody in Nigeria buys it. And then they buy a tanker truck and they go to the next country and sell it. So you literally of they do. Yeah. So you literally could not get fuel in a country that, you know, was one of the major oil exporters. But no, because that, the black black market is exporting it as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. Everybody, everybody is like, and anywhere near the border, it's just all tanker trucks trying to load up on Nigerian fuel. And of course the customs guys get a cut. So it goes there. Another kind of camel trophy moment was, uh, was with my, was with my wife and we were in uh, Botswana and Okavanga Delta in the 101. And it was when the Delta's high. So it's like the largest inland Delta in the world. It's like a whole river that just empties out into a desert. It never goes to the sea. And there are a series of bridges, but ironically, most of the bridges are underwater during the high water time. So we were, and, and again, this is a different time. We were recently in Botswana and now it's very uh, regimented, they're defined trails and you have to stay on them and you have to be out of the park and you're not allowed to go to certain places. But in those days, it was more, you could just wander around. So we were just wandering around in the kind of close to, uh, Zambia, kind of like up in that area. I got onto this bridge. We're underwater. We're probably a foot underwater. So you can't really see the bridge and the bridge is just made out of logs. Um, so again, kind of this camel trophy feel to it. And it broke. One of the logs broke. And so all of a sudden we're in the water, the log jammed up against the wheel. And so I'm like, all right, I got to get out and I got to, we got to dig this out and we got to winch. So again, it was one, it was my wife and I as a team, but at one point, you know, this is again, before digital cameras and stuff, but I was like into YouTubing before YouTube existed. I had a, I had a, you know, an eight, a high eight video recorder. And I had my camera and I was like, I told my wife, I'm like, you've got to get a picture of this. And she's like, all right. Okay. Cause the water's not that deep. You know, it's just kind of like, uh, and it's got, there's a nice bottom to it. So she's out and I'm like, no, go farther back. And I want you to kind of get a zoom shot. And then I'm telling her to go back and back. And then she's like, are there crocodiles in here? And I'm like, <laughs> 
I'm like, yeah, so just keep an eye out, you know, but uh, but just get this shot for me. She immediately came in and, and refused to do that. So she was willing to to drag the uh, winch cable out. And, and we had plenty of things to anchor on in that case. But, you know, it was one of those things with the wildlife. We also had encounters with elephants where literally they were I had a big, powerful light and we heard all these elephants and you know you turn on the light and you've got like these two elephants we they they weren't charging us they they didn't care about us but they were like having a a, a dispute between these two kind of groups of of elephants and we just happened to be in the middle and you think for sure you're going to die but so basically from Kenya to South Africa was a lot of the fun Africa stuff where you see the big game um it was a lot more predictable so we did a lot of you know just driving and it was nice to have the soft top so we'd roll the soft top back you could stand up you could really do game viewing um you know we came within we had lions like underneath the truck at sometimes just cuz they wanted to get shade and if you're parked there long enough so we had an amazing you know amazing wildlife experience and uh you know then we made it down to south africa where i met a land rover enthusiast in, and he had a uh one one oh one ten actually technically a 110 2b forward control um and he owned well, a that's different yeah. They, well, the South Africans used them um, and they had funky windshields too, like the old cars that had the windshields that, uh, Hold that, down. well, they, no, they flapped out. open yeah. so yeah. that, you, so that they are, act as like a big vent. And apparently that was a genuine Land Rover part that they made for the, the South Africans. So we had met him in Zimbabwe and we, you know, and he said, uh, just look me up when you're in Cape town. And so we did, um, and he had a big vineyard. So we spent some time on the vineyard and then that gave me a chance to, you know, get the, the one Oh one loaded up into a, uh, a container and, uh, it came back to the States and, and I have it to this day. Um, you know, I haven't, driven it it's one of these uh i think you know we have a me dixon and ben kind of have a competition going over who's going to get the 101 their 101s going i think mine's the closest to getting i think all i need to do with it is uh change a an oil cooler hose on it that's why i parked it but it's you know that but i've got a lot of other there two other vehicles there's a dead range rover it's kind of trapped by other non-functioning vehicles but but yeah so basically you know that started my um my whole land rover 101 thing and then basically most of the stuff i did after that uh, you know, is North America and UK stuff, UK shows and things like that. We've been talking for a good hour, George. We're going to have you on the next podcast. We're going to pick up your North American adventures. Yeah. Just split it by continent. Yeah. North American. And also that kind of, kind of, if I started going coil sprung at about that point as well. So mm, you went soft. Yeah. And then I went softer with air. <laughs> Where can folks find you on the uh, on the internet? Do you have Instagram or Facebook or anything that shows some of your adventures? You know, not really. No, I don't. I the funny thing is, it's it's on my big to do list. I've got tons of pictures <laughs> and I got tons of videos, sure. but I just never seen. The irony is, the main Northwoods. 
I just literally put that out there. It's totally unedited. The only reason I put it on YouTube is I couldn't do this was a long time ago, you know, and it, a file was like a gigabyte. And this was like, just after this is when you're still burning things to DVDs, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, so I wanted to just show everybody else who was involved in it. You know, I said, Oh, I found this video and I, tra- I transferred it to digital. So that's the only thing that I really have um, as an online presence with, uh, with the Land Rovers. Well, we'll pick that up next month. Uh, Thanks very much, George, for talking with us this month. Listeners, you'll have to wait a month to hear the North American Adventures. Yeah, no, it sounds like fun. We hope you enjoyed show number 116 for November 2022. Thanks to George Bull for his adventures in Africa. He will return in January for his adventures in North America. Next month for December of 2022, the triumphant return of Jeff Aronson. And thanks to the full team here this month, we had Morgan, we had Harold, and we had Dixon. Thank you, gentlemen. You're welcome. Yeah, sure. Ten bucks is ten bucks. It's always fun talking computers and chips for my non-computers and chip uh, hobby. I See, I, I was hoping, Morgan, that you would be looking up the cost of purchasing a Freelander. <laughs> that'll that'll be next (laughs) right after we're done recording right yeah yeah and also thanks to the one true packs for his continued production support he's also a computer guy so i'm sure he enjoyed the discussion of trips visit our website centersteer.com to listen to previous shows and for show notes which have links to the stories we discussed in today's podcast including the videos that we had in the news and we'll also have uh, links to george bull's adventures and he has some videos to share also We post a new podcast at the end of every month and you can connect with us on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, email, and voicemail. You can directly support the show at patreon.com slash center steer. You can also buy a t-shirt sticker or buy some brown water. You too can become like the Baron of Brown Water. Click on store on the menu of our webpage for more information. If you have an idea for a guest, we are open to it. Please send us the details. And if you have their contact info, please include that in honor of Land Rover's 75th anniversary in 2023, you are invited to bring your Land Rover, specifically Series and Defenders, to the Pittsburgh Vintage Grand Prix in wonderful Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in July of 2023. You have seven months to prepare your Rover, and you have six months to prepare for Anarch's Diamond Jubilee in lovely Corton, New York. So you have six months to prepare your vehicle to make it to the Jamboree. And then you have one month to fix it again after you break it at the Jamboree before you come to Pittsburgh. No breaking. We don't want any breaking. Please don't break any rovers. But And it's all downhill from Greek Peak to Pittsburgh, right? So you can just coast all the way down. Well, there you go. So, you, so you'd have a month to just push it to Pittsburgh if you had to. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear from you and what you're up to in your Land Rover. Until next time, I ask you to share the show with one other Land Rover enthusiast. Thanks for listening. You may now resume your important things. Like getting your Rover ready. Like getting your Rover ready. Everybody, run for your lives!